Welcome to the Bitcoin Breakout, a production of the Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spierko. Remember, you can always find all our episodes at thebitcoinbreakout.com. You can also find all episodes of the Survival Podcast at tspc.co. If you want full personal sovereignty, Bitcoin is only one step. On the Survival Podcast, we discuss all aspects of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and personal liberty. Now strap in and get ready for another episode of the Bitcoin Breakout, where we discuss how Bitcoin and the Lightning Network will literally change everything. Fix the money, fix the world. Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout. Today, if you're tracking it with TSP episode numbers, it's 3131. If you're tracking it as a Bitcoin Breakout episode, it's episode 12. Today we have a really great episode. This is one for everybody, even if you're not into the Bitcoin thing and you're here because you're a TSP longtime listener. You know, we've been doing this 14 years. You're like, man, I, I really wish Jack would just keep his Bitcoin stuff to himself. You still want to listen to this one because Texas Slim is a seventh generation Texan, a seventh generation Texas rancher that is on a mission to reconnect consumers with ranchers that actually raise cattle the right way by like feeding them. Oh, I don't know, grass, like ruminants are supposed to eat grass. That's crazy talk. He's looking to improve the health and security of our local community. So if you're into regenerative agriculture, this is a show for you. If you're a keto carnivore, this is a show for you. If you're Bitcoin, this is a show for you because the infrastructure he's helping to build uses Bitcoin as a payments medium to order and receive your beef from your rancher. He's helping to build infrastructure and relationships across the country. He's been touring all over the country. So even though this kind of originated in Texas, it is not limited to Texas. We'll hear all about it in just a minute when I get Texas Slim on for our live feed. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Start9.com. Guys, if you want to take back your digital sovereignty... You want to get over to Start9. Now, look, I have negotiated with you. If you're a member of my members program, which you can learn more about at the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. And by the way, it's on sale right now with discount code troll for 30 bucks a year. I've, I've negotiated a discount on everything Start9 has. And even their base model S9 server will save you three to four years of your MSB right there in one discount code. So definitely sign up for the MSB. Start9 is great. Yes, you can run a Bitcoin node. Yes, you can run a Lightning node. But there's so much more that Start9 does for you to take back your digital sovereignty. Learn more at Start9.com. And again, if you if you buy from Start9 without being an MSB member, you hate money. And uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin people are not supposed to hate money. Next up today, we have the Wealthsteading Podcast. Now, look, investing is something that is beyond just Bitcoin. It's understanding markets. It's understanding market timing. And building wealth is not just about stacking sats. It's also about investing in the right equities and things like that, managing your retirement accounts, etc. For that, you want insight from someone who knows what they're doing. John Pugliano has the Wealth Steading Podcast at WealthSteading.com. Let me tell you why John and I work together. Okay, We met at Salt Lake, like Salt Lake City about 12 years ago. He said that he was starting a business as, a, as an investment advisor slash financial advisor, that type of thing, investment manager, really. And he knew I didn't like investment managers. And he, he knew that I called them financial liars. And these are the people that work for American Express or whatever. Like I have no use for those people. They're just relationship salespeople. But what got me on John is he said, you know, I really wanted to do this. So I had a, a good blue-collar job that made decent money. And I spent 10 years, and I made myself into a millionaire through investing. 
then I thought it was right for me to invest other people's money. I'm like, this is somebody I can work with. And we've been working together, like I said, for more than a decade now. You want to check out the wealthsteadingpodcast.com if you really want to know how to build wealth and you want to know what's gone in the markets around you. With that, before we get into uh, talking to Texas Slim, I want to acknowledge some of you guys that have been sending me boostergrams on value for value, uh, including somebody that preemptively boosted us for the Texas Slim show you're about to hear. I'll tell you what happened with that. So, um, Hermes Design has boosted us with 396 sats as trolls be in them their hills. So another troll boost. Uh, Lily Farms Food said, can't wait for today's show. Share these sats with Texas Slim. Sent me 11,800 sats. I sent Slim 5,500 sats. Graham, I'm a piker. You're a piker. We're all pikers from the piker himself. John Dowie, 264 sats. 79 sats from American guy who just says, Troll! Billy Gray Maine says, Just did my first lightning transaction last night. Uh, fountain to Mun, hence not many sats in my fountain. Later today I'll do a Mun to Exodus and then onto my Trezor, all because your value you're providing. Uh... Next up, we have uh, 4,489 sats from Stephen B. First fiat dollar. Curocaster also lets you send in boostograms, and it can be funded using Strike or Cash App. Very similar to how the wallet and fountain is funded. And guys, I can't, I, I can't keep up with the boostograms. I might have to put my wife on like a thing where she catalogs them for me or something and puts them into a script. I'm getting them while I'm doing this, and this is a pre-recording of an intro. I just want to say thank you, guys. Here's another one. User 7647 says, thank you, Jack. You continue to help me improve my life. Um, Jordan Richner says, monetize trolls, eat meat, stack sats, be sovereign, 396 sats. Yet another fantastic episode. Jack, P.S. Screw the Trolls, boost 79 sats. If I missed you in this one... I'm sorry. And know that if you boost me and you don't put a boostogram in, it doesn't show up on the page that I read those off. It just shows up at the episode level. Uh, one of you guys boosted me yesterday 25,000 sats, but you didn't send me a boostogram. But you know who you are. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. See, this is what Bitcoin does. It creates this value-for-value value edge effect. A value-for-value value edge effect. I think this is incredibly important to understand that's what's really going on. I've been teaching people to invest in Bitcoin since 2014. I've been teaching people about permaculture, regenerative agriculture, and things like that since 2010. 2010. These two worlds overlap, and the gentleman you're about to hear from, you're going to see how that effect happens. But all real abundance is at what we call an edge in the ecosystems. That's why if you want to graze cattle, that's great. But if you plant riparian areas of trees, so if you have an interface of trees and field together, and you create that edge, and you create shade so your cows don't die in the field, you get greater abundance. In fact, we can even grow food for people on those trees or food for the cattle on those trees. We can use those trees to actually create fence lines. So we can run our electric fencing right tacked into those trees, including support species. And then we can have movable paddocks as we shift cattle through the ecosystems. right? But all of that is an edge effect. When we, when we garden, if we garden at a layered approach, we end up with edges between the companion plantings, and we have greater abundance. When we start to have this edge effect between listeners and creators of podcasts, then we have greater abundance. We have this spirit of generosity. 
I'm throwing sats around just like you guys are. It's exciting. It's like the early days of Bitcoin when people just gave away a Bitcoin at a time. When they were worth a couple bucks. And like, I want you to get started. This is really what the Bitcoin ecosystem is about. And it's really what permacultural abundance is about. When things are abundant, we don't fight over them. We, we gladly exchange value with people. Human beings are hardwired to share value. And that's why I'm excited about our guest that we're about to bring on, Texas Slim. Because that's what he's doing. He's simply matchmaking people that have one form of value with people that have another form of value and creating the permaculture edge. So for those of you who have found Bitcoin Breakout, and you're like, I like this guy and I like his content, I don't know about all this crazy prepper survival stuff, dig in deeper to the world of permaculture and regen ag. Because it is this edge that is beginning to form right now between people raising food the right way and people who want to consume that food and that value-for-value value exchange edge that is really changing everything. And the question remains, how many places can we create this edge? We're doing it right now between podcasters and listeners. We're doing it right now, about to talk about it, between food producers and food consumers. Everywhere there is value on one side and value on the other, there's an opportunity to create this edge. And I have never been more excited about Bitcoin and regenerative agriculture than I am right now. And with that, let's drop into the live feed. And we are live. Welcome to another episode of the Survival Podcast. And today, the Bitcoin Breakout. We have some stuff going on today that is right up the alley of both groups. So we're going to talk about Bitcoin and beef. And that's two of my favorite things. And uh, I'm really excited to bring you guys our special guest today, Texas Slim of the Beef, beef Initiative. Hey, Slim. How you doing, man? Hey, man. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. We've been trying to get this going for a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks yeah. for pushing me in. Yeah, we, we made it work. I, as soon as I heard you wanted to be here, I made sure we were going to make it happen. We have to bounce some scheduling around. We got it done. Um, before we talk about food intelligence, beef initiative, Bitcoin, any of that stuff, just give us a little bit about your background. I mean, you're like a seventh generation Texan no. rancher, right? Well, you, you, I don't say rancher. I just say a seventh generational agricultural person in the state of Texas. You know, it's where my ancestors came from. You know, way back when we came from the Appalachians, the Carolinas, but we made it to Texas pretty early. And then my grandparents, you know, uh, great grandparents, we established up in the Texas Panhandle late, late 1890s, probably. And so we went through a whole sequence of events of, you know, Texas becoming a, a true state and then, you know, establishing food, you know, uh, basically supplying food to the nation in the cattle industry. My grandfather was, you know, he was based out about 90 miles away from the epicenter of the Dust Bowl. So, you know, we've gone through a lot of, uh, you know, as far as coming from South Texas, East Texas, all the way to the panhandle of Texas. And it has a lot of generations that have made that pioneering, you know, sequence of events of uh, generations happen. And I grew up in small town, Texas, uh, Panhandle, Texas, a place called Canyon, Texas. And uh, I grew up there, you know, uh, basically working on grandfather's farm, working on other people's ranches, you know, just all the all the Texas Panhandle, you know, that's what it is. It's oil, gas, cows and, you know, cotton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we used to say. And, uh, you know, so I, I have a lot of uh, heritage behind me, have a lot of tradition behind me, a lot of knowledge. And but being a small town Texas boy, you want to be in the city. So I moved to Austin when I was about 19 and then I got into technology. And throughout the years, I 
was through the innovations of, you know, getting, you know, online software, smart startup companies during the dot-com boom and bust. And so I've had a fascinating career and I kind of leveraged it all into, you know, growing up, uh, you know, with the agricultural side of me. And then the, I became a research analyst and I started diving deep into food intelligence about three years ago. So it's been a fascinating uh, kind of ride up until, you know, right up until now. Awesome. And so what you're doing, the overriding theme, I guess, over you call food intelligence. And, and yeah. How, how did you get started with food intelligence? Is this something that was important to you? Sure. Well, you know, I, I started looking at, I'm pretty beat up, man. I, you know, the growing up how I did, I, I've broken like over 20 bones. I've got like 14 pieces of metal in me. So I've always kind of been part of the medical system, but more of the medical system about putting me back together. Right. Yeah. And, you know, putting plates in my neck or my arms or whatever it is. But a lot of my family, a lot of people that I grew up with, you know, they came from the same uh, dirt that I did. You know, my cousins, my aunt, uncles and aunts. And, you know, several years ago, I got kind of I had an internal injury and I had to be laid up for about six weeks. And so I started looking into, you know, consumption models and, you know, my cousins, you know, my family, a lot of people suffer from metabolical, you know, uh, issues as far as diabetes, obesity, heart disease. And so I said, I want to, I've always been pretty healthy. I've always been very active and I was pretty, you know, immune to the metabolical failures and I wanted to look at food again. So I started looking at food at the same time I was healing up. I was about six weeks on the bed and everything. And I started looking at food, but I also started looking at food in a different way. I wanted to decentralize it because I had picked apart how grandfather taught us how to feed a community and how he localized everything that he did kind of on a decentralized two-party line system as far as when it came to protein and produce and everything. He kept the family fed and he kept the community fed. And whenever I started doing that, I found Bitcoin. And, you know, looking at Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ethos, it's built on decentralization. So I'd started diving down Bitcoin and food intelligence at the same time. And it took me off in a different direction as far as understanding our consumption models, who controls the seed. And so I came up with this slogan, you know, the source of the seed. I wanted to find the source of the seed of where we came from. And that led me into a deeper dive into the global apparatus that, you know, I call impact, the medical, pharmaceutical, agricultural complex. Mm -hmm. I started seeing all these similarities together. And so I started connecting dots and kind of went into the, you know, started writing about it. I wrote a paper called The Harvest of Deception. And I kind of uncovered some things that I think a lot of people don't understand. And it's pretty daunting. And so I started telling a story about it. And then I knew that I had to create basically a solution. We just can't bitch about things. We need to actually provide solutions. And that's how I led into the beef initiative because I, I leveraged off of what my grandfather taught me, how I was raised around beef and good, pure food. And, you know, I knew that we needed to de decentralize our food systems because what they're about to try to accomplish is basically a global industrial food shift. And it's happening right now in front of us. Yeah, I've noticed that like there's this ethos among people that are not Bitcoiners that we're all a bunch of like Chad bros that code and, and, and pound weights and eat nothing but meat. Right. And I think there's a little tiny thread of truth in that that we kind of move toward like because I'm not a code bro. I promise you that. <laughs> Me neither. I, I hear an awful lot of meat, not much of anything else. But I think it's because so you went into food, found the truth of food and ended up in the Bitcoin world. A lot of people seem to go into the Bitcoin world and they end up finding the truth of food. 
Sure. And I, I think it's when you find a truth, then you start looking for other truths and you start pulling on that yeah. thread of what's going on there. And the reason I think there's so much overlap with like the keto carnivore lifestyle and, and grass fed and pastured meats and things like that um, with Bitcoin is because one truth leads to another. And I mean, I'm an example of it. So four years ago, I weighed about 300 pounds. Oh, wow. Right. I'm not on the cover of GQ or nothing right now. <laughs> I am not. Three, three oh, you're looking good, pounds. man. You're looking good. Yeah. Right. And, and I ate an awful lot of fatty meat to get here. Right? right. Like that was my sacrifice. I had to eat tons of fatty meat and not eat garbage. And that's all I really did. Um, and I think then you start asking other questions like about medicine in general, like you were alluding to this. Not, so the food makes a lot of the medicine unnecessary if we do it right. But then there's a lot of crap in medicine as well. And I think that because Bitcoin is truth and whether you like it or not, we can agree that it is what it is. Like when we look at the blockchain, we can all audit all the way back to the Genesis block. And this is something we can agree. This is what it is, even if you don't like it. And exactly. there's not many things like that. And once you find one, I think you want to find more. You really do. And, you know, that's how it balances out so well. You know, it's by the ignorance of food, the ignorance of Bitcoin, you know, the discovery of Bitcoin, the, the deeper dive into food intelligence. It kind of just works. It's the yin and the yang of understanding of, you know, basically self-empowerment, you know, sound money, sound, sound health, you know, sound communications. It all coalesces in together. And it's a great kind of model to kind of look at and create kind of a person, personal ethos of understanding. And once we do that, you know, it does. It, it's like a, a domino effect of truth and untruth and you uncover things. And I think, you know, a lot of people talk crap on Bitcoin or they t talk crap on food. Well, we know that's usually you know, kind of a projection and displacement of ignorance or, or fear is what it is. You know, and people don't want to, you know, they don't want to own up. They don't want to have that accountability mirror put in front of their face. And Bitcoin does that with mood, uh, money. And then food intelligence does it with our consumption models of what we eat every day and how we've gotten it where we are as a nation as far as being metabolically bankrupt. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it's a slow roll. You just don't overnight look at it. People look at Bitcoin and think it's, you know, it's, it's like the stock market. It's not. It's a ledger that basically it has, you know, an update every 10 minutes. You know, it's, it's, it's something you have to put a lot of hours into understanding. Same with our consumption models of what we eat, you know, our labeling, our freaking, you know, the FDA, the USDA, how they've basically really, you know, circumvented around truth when it comes to nutrition and what you should be eating and what you shouldn't be eating. Agreed. Great. So what were the skill sets you, you drew on to create what you've called the beef initiative? Well, the, the, the one thing, you know, it was real simple. I was at the gym one day and I was like, man, I'm really freaking, I need to come up with something. And I, once again, I always say we got to take two steps back before we can move forward right now, especially let's look where we came from. And so I, so I, I looked at my childhood. I looked at my grandfather, which he was such a powerful man in my life. And I said, all right, let's look at what we used to do. All right. I used to go to the farm, used to work. How did we eat? You know, I really looked at how we ate. Well, one thing I remember is that growing up, we had a freezer, an extra freezer, and it was always full of beef, 
bacon, you know, any type of animal protein, fowl, whatever, venison, elk. We had it in our freezers, and you could go to that freezer 24-7, and you're always comfortable, and you always knew that you could come up with a meal, and it was never in question. And where we got that meal was everybody that we knew in our community. And I remember my dad. I remember everybody around me, my uncles, my aunts, my me, my grandfather, of course. We always knew how to shake a damn hand. You know, that was part of us, yeah. our upbringing. And we had to look you in the eye. We had to shake your hand. And by doing that, I knew that there was something there that what we needed to do was go up and start looking at where we stand, where we put our boots every day and go shake some ranchers hand. And so I, I, I looked at my professional career within big tech, within startup companies, and I was a pretty good research analyst. I worked in communications and I knew that, and I used to, I, I came from project management early on. So I, I knew that I could tie all that together and really kind of build a, a platform of understanding and kind of node building, you know, that network building that is required to get a voice out there and to start making change in people's lives. And so I started, you know, creating a network of ranchers and I started creating a network of consumers that I knew would really pay attention. And I released, you know, an article. I never was a writer, but I kind of became somewhat of a writer, a novice writer. But I wanted to target the Bitcoin community because they believe in transparency. They believe in truth, honesty, and, you know, a sound future. And so I kind of tied it all together, made a project out of it, and I got some people to come along with me. And uh, here we are. So I've got a ton of producers in my mm-hmm. office, right? That I mean, not all of them are beef. A lot of them are into poultry and pork as well. But I've got a ton of people raising beef in my audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do they tie in to become part of the beef, beef initiative? Well, you know, we start with the regenerative mindset, you know, and I live out, you know, my home base. Well, it's it's right now I'm home based out of the Texas Panhandle. Not too far away from me is feed yard heaven, feedlot heaven, you know, grain fed, finished off, you know, JBS, Cargill, National, all that kind of stuff. In the ranching community, you know, there's a war within the ranching community of regenerative and, you know, feedlot farming. And it, it, that's something I want everybody to, to understand straight up. This is a respect for the American rancher. We're trying to save the American rancher right now. This is not an argument, and this is not a freaking analysis paralysis session to see who's better and who's not. So anybody that's producing meat and they want to feed communities – then I want to talk to them through the Beef Initiative. And so I encourage everybody to understand right now you can go to the beefinitiative.com site and you go to the producer section and you can put yourself in there as a producer. You can create your own market access to anybody you want to target. If you're proud enough and you stand by how you're producing cattle in the United States of America and you want people to find you, Let's start there because you're going to have to answer questions. And if you are okay with answering those questions on how you produce and how you steward the land and the animals, you can be part of the beef initiative. And if you do, if you step up and you're willing to do that, then, you know, we start working with ranchers that come through the platform. And then we start looking about what their business model is. How do they want to reach, you know, the United States? Do they want to reach the United States as far as providing beef to everyone? Something like a butcher box or something like that or Whole Foods? Or do they just want to do a, a radius around where they are? 
and we don't want to change anybody's business models. We just want to give the damn rancher a voice again because it's been squashed and it's having a detrimental effect on our nation, on our food supplies, on our nutrition levels, our kids' diets, you know, just in general. There's a reason why we don't know ranchers because that's the basically the, the market access that's been stolen. The market access, there's a bottleneck there, and it's something the ranchers need to be able to express. And so I, I welcome anybody. This is this is a this is a global movement here that we're learning that we need to get back to a peer-to-peer system of talking to our ranchers. And I want ranchers to have that voice. And I love that you're doing it in a way that works for the person based on their model because there's people yeah. that are raising a dozen head a cycle, right? They're yeah. probably not going to ship very. They're probably not going to ship very far. Or tie into like. A, a large number of, of uh, outbound. They probably right. do want to sit more. The other side of it, there's people that they're ranching in places that they don't have a huge market to sell to locally. So we need a way to do both. Yeah, and- we really do because we, everybody gets a little carried away with looking at the macro level, you know, the, where we yeah. live in, you know, global problems, global issues. Let's, let's kind of bring that back in and look where you're standing. And I, I think that's what a lot of producers want to do. I mean, K&C cattle, Cobalt, out of south, you know, south of Austin, right there. You know, we're selling nationally. He's he's supplying all the beef that we're selling through the beef initiative, right? Well, we also have uh, other ranchers that are in the beef initiative, like Todd Wheel of Arkansas. He was about to give up and just get out of it, you know, and he's doing twenty, about twenty head. Well, he didn't know how he was going to move forward, and I talked to him. He didn't have a website. All he had was a phone number and his address. I said, put Mm. yourself in the beef initiative. He put himself in the beef initiative. Well, he has sold out this year, and now he's bringing on more cattle. As more people are getting rid of their cattle, he's increasing his herd size. And then we have Justin Trammell of Panhandle Meats here in the Texas Panhandle. Well, he just opened up his own processing center, and he he could sell nationally right now, but he wants to feed his community, so he's targeting 60 miles around Canyon, right. Texas. And so it's up to the it's up to the rancher to say this is what I want to do. And we bring in the technology stack that I'm very good with, and my partner, you know, he he's a software engineer. He came out of retirement during COVID to team up with me to do this. So we have the technology. We built the you know the transactional sequences within. Bitcoin. So we're, we're re- really just leveraging what they have already got established as far as the producer and we're allowing them to say, this is what I want to do. We're not trying to change anything. We're not asking anything from the rancher except to give them a voice and a way that they can create their own consumer demand and their own market access. And to not be doing feedlot beef, right? Exactly. If that's what they want to do. And there's a lot of producers that are looking into the regenerative way of doing things. Yeah. And it's a slow step. You know, you might have to leverage back and forth, but a lot of producers that they want to get out of it. Sure. Once again, they're handcuffed by the four major processors, you know, the global processors that, you know, basically destroying our market access to good animal protein. And all in the name of public safety, which probably was the legitimate thing in the 1920s. Maybe. You know, well, maybe, maybe, right? Like there was at least some problem with people getting bad food and stuff like that. Part of the reason we have big food today is because they figured out how to put stuff in cans and boxes and have it not kill you. Um, But those days are gone. I mean, we have this, this magical thing called refrigeration and freezing now, and we have overnight shipping. Like we don't, we don't need 
and in fact, I say we, we, we actually need to get rid of the system that we have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it more dealing, you know, I have three acres, so I'm not going to be running cattle on three acres right. of, 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 of basically limestone shoal. Um, so I, I deal with more small animals, but I see it with local people trying to do something simple as chicken and what have you and having a hard time being able to get it processed because if you want to do anything other than on-farm processing, you have to go to an FDA's facility where they have to literally pay the salary of an FDA clown who sits there. Yeah. And this is in nobody's interest except, let's say, Tyson in that world, right, or Pilgrim's Pride or whatever, or, you know, the big meat packers for beef. It's all it's all in their interest. It's not in the interest of the consumer. It's not even in the interest of, I would say, like the distribution system for like the average person that works in food in the food industry somewhere. It's yeah. not in the best interest of the restaurant. It's not in the best interest of the restaurant customer. It's not in the best interest of the end user, but it is a system of control. And resting systems of control away from people who have had a century of that control is difficult. But then there's also like that concept of an idea whose time has come. And I think more people are looking for this and asking this. I also think like the whole, you know, uh, COVID thing was kind of a blessing in that people looked at pictures of farmers burying hundreds or thousands of pigs while shells were empty. Yeah. And going, there has to be something wrong in this system. So yeah. I think people are open to it now. Who, who's your, your target audience as a customer here? Well, target audience of a customer is somebody that wants to be intentional about what they're eating anymore that doesn't rely on the apparatus that has got us here in the first place. I mean, you know, I don't look to judge people. What I like to do is really kind of, you know, tell the truth. And if you look since 1971 when we went off the gold standard in our food systems, that was a global food industrial shift at the same time that we went off our food uh, uh the gold standard. So if you look at our money and our food, I mean, it's been a gradual decline basically of our health and a gradual decline of the U.S. dollar to where it's getting debased. And so, you know, let's look at the, the average consumer. You know, I do not, I'm not a, I'm a horrible damn consumer. I, but I'm very good at exchanging quality and value. So I want, you know, as far as, you know, the consumer demand that we want, we want it to be that person that is intentional, that has good intentions, and that really wants to understand what nutrition and food is. And if you look about our our education within nutrition and food and how it's been hijacked, you know, from Ansel Keys to cholesterol to the, the fat-free, you know, psyop that's been going on for these decades, if people are really, really, you know, um, intentional about what they want to do as far as feeding their family. That's who we want in there. This is not a vegan versus carnivore thing. This is about clean, pure food. This is about decentralizing a food system that is basically corrupt. And you're talking about the Packers from Tyson to JBS. You know, a lot of people don't realize, let's look at COVID and how people kind of uncovered some things that happened, you know, with, you know, livestock's being killed off. Well, JBS settled out of court with the United States government for $56 million. They didn't have to go to court. They just said, here you go. We screwed up. And you know what it was? It was price manipulation. And at that time, we were flooding our markets from Canada, from South America, from Africa, beef coming across the globe into our basically processing apparatus in the United States. Well, because they, the price manipulation that happened during COVID – 
JBS, they paid $56 million, but they made $500 million in profit. And that's what I sign up for that, that action. I'm, I'll, I'll, that's okay with me. <laughs> well, that's I guess that's the mob, right? That's all that right. is. That 10%, the mob is more honest than the government, by the way. They just say, Hey, Hey, yeah, protection money, right? that. yeah, 15%, yeah. man, sure, why not? And so, you know, the, the, the corruption and the deception within our food systems, man, it's daunting. You know, you look at whenever Tyson bought IBP and, you know, how they changed the beef industry as well. JBS kind of piggybacked off their, you know, success. And a lot of people don't realize that 80 to 85% of our animal protein in the United States is only processed by four major global industries or corporations. And once they start finding that out, they're like, whoa, wait a second. And, you know, we, we rely on labeling. We rely on, you know, trusting. We're a very trusting people. And that trust has been, you know, abused. And it's time to realize that it's not a judgment against you or me or the average consumer. Let's like, hey, let's wake up. Let, let's pay attention to what's going on here because it's really having a detriment on our society. And I, I started this. My intentions with the Beef Initiative and Food Intelligence is to save children's lives. During COVID, the Washington, whatever post, whatever you want to call that rag, they basically came out and you can look for it. It's out there. And it was something like 46%. These are the facts. 40%, 46% of our children in the United States between the ages of five and 11 are now obese or overweight or going to, and one out of two is going towards diabetes. These are children, people. These are not adults. They have no choice. They are defenseless on the consumption. And their, ba- their taste buds have been hijacked since they were babies, and it's going on, and it's moving forward. And if you look at our consumption models and you look at the food that we're being fed, and you don't think there's a problem with our children being obese and overweight at 5 to 11 years old, that, that's a genocide. And I, I, and I get so pissed off that people don't pay attention to what's going on with their consumption models because it tastes good. You know, those yeah. days are over with, you know, bullshit. It's time to wake up and start doing something to start saving a generation of kids that ha- they're defenseless and nobody's paying attention to it. I think it makes me sick when I'm out. And I don't like to look down my nose at anybody, but when I'm I don't out, either, I'm, man, I'm out and about and I see like a family and like the parents are obese and the kids are not maybe completely fat, but they're chunky. And you're like, unless something happens in the heart of that family, these kids have no chance. They're going to be type two diabetic before they drive a car. Right. And like it makes me think back, like what you were talking about, like the way that our, our grandparents lived in all my grandfather. And I'm not going to recommend anybody live this way, but he was a coal miner. The yeah. man had pieces of coal in his arm that he didn't think were worth getting taken out. Right. He, he had a rough, hard life. He was a World War Two veteran, uh, first generation Ukraine immigrant, smoked two packs of camel cigarettes a day. Lived on bacon and eggs, and but we always had a garden. And my grandmother was a Ukrainian, so they put butter and cheese in everything. And the man lived into his 90s. Of course. Right? And, then, you know, talking about kids, like, so I'm a, I don't know how old you are. I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. And I remember Me back too. to, like, grade, grade school, middle school. And in your school, there'd be a fat kid. Right? Maybe. And everybody kind of can remember there would be a, a fat kid. One, Right. Right. One or two, maybe. By the time you got to high school, maybe there were two. 
And if you said the fat kid, people would be like, oh, Jason or whoever or her name or his name was, right? Like today, they'd be like, which one? And <laughs> I, that's, I know we have some younger listeners in my audience. I got some people that are, you know, they're not even millennials. They're Gen Zs, right? And right. They, they, like when you say 1978, they're like, wow, oh, his old grandfather and all. Like that is not that far ago in human history. It's not even a, a microsecond in human no. history. We've done all this to ourselves, and we've let them do it to us in about 40 to 45 years. This has happened. Because I remember kids, we, we used to drink soda and eat cookies and shit like that. We just didn't do it all the time. Like Sunday afternoons, I would go with my uncle to the gun uh, the gun club, and they would have a, there was a bar where guys sat around and talked about guns. There wasn't a lot of shooting really going on. It was sure. one of those kind of local <laughs> clubs. But, you know, it would be after church, and we'd go to the gun club, and – all the men would be sitting around having a beer or something like that, and they'd give me a little soda, a little regional soda called a Green Spot. And mm-hmm. I think that bottle's about seven to nine, somewhere between seven and nine ounces. I got one of those a week. Yeah. Right? One of those a week, not a, a, a 64 ounce giant slurpy every day or anything. And my childhood didn't suck. I never felt like I was deprived. Like you were saying, we lived on deer, we lived on fish out of the, out of the creeks. Uh, you know, I mean, this is not a strange way to live. I think the way we're living today, this is a strange way to live where everything comes out of a box or a package. Yeah, it, it, it's a good point because I'm a child of the 70s, too, and so much happened in the 70s. I mean, it was a shit decade, you know, decade in a lot of reasons. You know, the family got torn apart. It was the decade of divorce. You know, there, there was a global food industrial shift that happened in the 70s. But if anybody out there that's kind of new to this, you know, as far as food intelligence, do a Google search. And do an image search on people on the beach in 1969 and now do a same Google search in 2022 and you're going to see a different picture. In that small amount of time that you talk in human history is a little over 50 years is what it is. Well, that same amount of time is whenever our food has changed and it's been a slow burn of how it's happened and there's been consolidations of food, global food corporations, but there's always been a consolidation on how we create food, how we process food, the fake commodities that we have built into our consumptions, into our food supply, most people don't understand how complex it is and how daunting it is what they've introduced. You know, you look at rapeseed, which is canola, right? Okay, it was outlawed by the FDA back in 1956 when FDA probably was actually had true good intentions before they were captured by these global corporations. Well, they outlawed rapeseed, canola oil. Well, now canola oil is injected into everything that we eat, and it's poisonous. I mean, it's it's motor oil. It's industrial waste. It is. It truly is. And the, the, the level of industrial processing that has to go into rapeseed is phenomenal. It's like, oh, my God. And we, we willingly, you know, we you know, McDonald's used to use tallow to uh, cook the fries, to fry their French fries. Well, of course, now they use canola, you know, or whatever seed oil that they can say, you know, it's, oh, we use cottonseed. It doesn't matter, man. It's, it's a freaking seed oil and it's nasty. And so, you know, talking about your grandfather, it's so simple. It's complicated to people because they've been indoctrinated by these institutions of what food is, what nutrition is and how to obtain it. And you have food science companies now that have sprung up, you know, in the last, like there's one called Royal DSM. They're a food science company and they basically design, uh, tastes 
they design artificial taste. They basically have hijacked our taste buds in a way that you're, it changes hormonal levels. It changes the way your brain thinks. And people keep on this hamster wheel of consumption of this food industrial crap, sludge. People call it so many things. They're hungry every four hours. I eat yeah. once or twice a day. I eat bacon, eggs, and beef. So, Boom. And, you know, and that's it. I don't think about food. I'm never hungry. I have a, I have a lot of energy, you know, here I am yeah. in my fifties. I don't have a problem, man. My food supply, I don't have food insecurity. My health is off the charts. You know, I've got doctors that are in the beef initiative telling me everything that's going on within the metabolical health from our brains to our inflamed brains to arthritis to inflammation of the systems to heart disease, you know, to everything that is going on. Well, guess what? It's based on this industrial waste in which we consume. And people need to wake up. Well, and I think there's something that's being done by big food. It could be 100% intentional. It could be inadvertent. It could be just because it works. But this is, if you look at the Paleolithic record, you just think about, take away modern agriculture. And I'm, I'm yeah. even considering like the Egyptians. I mean, there are no fields. There are no people out there scything. There's none of that. There's yeah. just the world as we knew it for the majority of the time human beings walked upright. There is no place in time where you are going to have a large amount of carbohydrate and fat, let alone protein, together at the same time. Never. We have these brief periods of high carbohydrate availability, like berries. And like, like you know, as a kid, we used to go pick blackberries up in the mountain. You had two weeks to do it. <laughs> All right. That's it. There's no more. We had a, like a real brief wild strawberry season. You ain't those were little. You ain't gonna get much of it. But that was like about nine, ten days, and they were gone. Blueberries lasted about three to four weeks. And mm-hmm. so no refrigeration, no freezing, no nothing. Those are very um, rare moments, and either they would be prized or they would be immediately consumed. Right. So we are hardwired. We need to put fat on. If we, if we take away modern society, you go back to what we used to be, you need, a, you need fat on your body when you go into the fall because that's your D3 battery, and that's going to burn off through the winter where there's less food available. So in our brain, when we get fat and we get carb in the same place at the same time, it triggers almost an involuntary drug-like response to consume. It does. Now you can have it anytime you want. Now it comes in a box, just add water and stir. And so we're constantly shocking ourselves with that. And the more we consume it, the more addictive it becomes. And that's what they're playing on. And so the, the people out there that have a hard time accepting that you actually get healthy by eating fatty meat, I always ask them, if I put you in the woods without a store to go to, and you're not in the tropics where wild figs grow, where are you going to get lots of carbohydrates? And there's never, any, like, well, we get berries, okay? Like I said, three, I'll give you two months a year. What do you eat for the other ten months? You're going to eat fish? You eat anything you can club, stab, beat, drive off a cliff, whatever. And the first thing you're going to eat is the fat and organs, because without freezers and all the wonderful things we have today, that's the first thing to go rancid and spoil. Yeah. So protein becomes your survival ration. Your, you, you know, your things you can dry like nuts or whatever. That's like your last ditch. And your fat is the primary fat, mallow, uh, uh, tallow, marrow. All of that is going to be what you most prize. And I don't know if you've ever watched like some of the indigenous societies. They, they literally, if they have a kill, like different age groups get different parts of the kill. Mm-hmm. And, and like, so the elders will get like first crack at the organ meats because they know how much value and they need it. And young yeah. children will. And then in the middle, it's more of like the protein fat thing. Like it's, it's like, we know this, this isn't our ancestral memory. 
It really is, and that's why I always tell people, you know, take two steps back, look over your shoulder, and see how we got here. Because a lot of people don't realize that. They don't understand that, you know, your body is basically right now, if you're not eating enough animal fats, it's actually craving animal fats. But within the, the food systems in which people rely on now, they just supplement that craving with something that really isn't that a true animal fat that they need. And that's why they stay hungry all the time. That's why they keep eating all the time. And they can say, well, I'm vegan and I'm doing well. Not really. You know, there's so many things that go that go wrong with that type of idealistic view. You know, you look at, you know, you look at the Amazon. Okay. The Amazon started out as a garden, right? But, you know, that garden sustained the animals. Those animals yeah. got the nutrients and minerals from the ground and people ate the animals because they couldn't eat the type of vegetation. They relied on the animals to provide those, uh, that, that recycling process into that mineral in which you needed. And you look at, you know, beef, that's what, uh, you know, a cow is a land tool. And what it does, it takes those minerals from a, that, that healthy soil and it delivers it to you so you can consume the animal and therefore that's where you get your strength. That's how we got here. You can't argue. We didn't get here eating spinach and we got no. here eating no. animals and, and no. people, you can be all, all idealistic as you want. You can be as educated as you want. And what you brought up, let's go out into the woods and let's survive for a week on grass. It's yeah. not going to happen, man. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Uh, Bill Mollison, who founded Permaculture, said the further you get away from the equator, the more of a carnivore you have to be. Right. And if anybody, you know, he's, he's passed away now, but just go argue with his writing if you want to. And that's a, that's a losing proposition arguing with that guy. I mean, it just, it just exactly. doesn't work. Like, because all you got to do is look at what's available. What do you, you get up into the northern tundra, what are you going to live on? Lichen? Right. Exactly. I mean, no, seriously, it's a cap. The, the, the caribou eat the lichen, and mm-hmm. they turn it into the most high quality, nutritionally dense food on the planet. Yeah. But you you can't eat the lichen, right? I mean, so much of the food that we think of as healthy and natural did not exist a few thousand years ago. Apples, you know, there are wild apples. There's wild apples. You know, where they're they're all every apple in the world takes its roots back to Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. So if you weren't in Kazakhstan, you weren't going to eat an apple. Like, it's, 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 like and you can argue with that, but that, like we have biological science through history that this is where every apple comes from. Yeah. And so it's not natural to be in Ohio and eating an apple. I'm not saying you should. I'm not being a purist. I'm just saying it's not a natural food if you live in the Ohio Valley. No. Well, I mean, how many, there's only like maybe one apple species that was native to the United States. Everything else was. species, yeah. Monsanto is one, and there is one other, but they're not things you pick up and eat. But, you know, it's a good point. It's like, you know, where, where, where do I stand? You know, where do I stand on this dirt? Where, what, how did we get here? You know, in Texas, it was, well, we got here with bison, and then we got here with cattle. Boom. That's it. So it's, it's like I said, it's so simple. It's complicated to most people. And you know, you have this, you have this lack of understanding, you know, when it gets in how it is basically really, you know, how, you know, even medical doctors, heart surgeons, you know, how they were lied to about cholesterol and how that is such a lie. And it was all started with Ansel Keys, you know, back Mm -hmm. in the 1950s with, you know, Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack, right? And so they said, oh, my God, our, our president, our warrior, you know, had a heart attack. Yeah. Nobody was having he ate a, heart a hamburger attack. yesterday. Beef must yeah. have done it. That was basically exactly. science, right? 
Yeah, but they didn't say that he smoked four packs of cigarettes yeah. a day either, and he'd just gone through and won a world war, and then he was the president of the United States. He's a little stressed, I'm sure, just a little I bit. I was going to say, could you imagine <laughs> the stress hormones released on D-Day? Yeah. Because my family has a connection to him, We some, um, and incredible adoration for the guy, what he did for the world. Mm-hmm. But from that, we know he really – like there's people, I think, in the military, they don't really – care he cared about every single one of those men and so the stress on that alone had to be freaking heart shattering well the only reason he was so strong in the beginning was because he did eat so much damn beef i mean (laughs) they targeted his diet didn't they that's what they said you eat too much beef well that's why he was strong should you know part of the studies that happened you know who was funding that well that was the tobacco company so, you know, to really dive deep into food intelligence, that's what it is. You know, people don't understand Crisco, right? Where, where did Crisco come from? Well, basically Procter and Gamble used to create a lot in the turn of the century back in the late 1890s. They sold the most candles in the world. Well, where did those candles come from? Well, it came from cotton seed. Well, all of a sudden, you had a nation start adopting electricity. Well, Procter and Gamble wasn't selling as many candles. And so what they had to do is they say, we need to do something with this commodity. What is the commodity? Cottonseed. Well, guess what? We, we're learning kind of how to market now. Let's turn this cottonseed, these candles, into something that you're going to consume now. Voila, you have Crisco. And they even made it white to look like a candle. And so they started targeting the heritage farm and ranch producer woman. And they started making the woman feel like, hey, I want to be international now, man. I, this is, this is eloquent. Look, this beautiful can. And I, I you know, we're going to start, you know, using something different because I'm stuck on this farm. And they, it was a, it was a marketing ploy that has not stopped since the early 1900s. And so once again, you look back at history, you can say, oh, I see now. And now look at, you know, you look at, you go to the grocery store. I just call it cartoon world anymore. Go down the, the aisles of, of the, the oils and how, yeah. how laughable that truly is. And how just, just put instead of like canola or vegetable oil, just put motor oil on every one of those. Yeah. And, and I, I know some people out there, that's kind of a stretch. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's it really not. Even the food that you and I maybe don't really eat, like wheat, that's mm. degraded. Like I remember one of Mollison's lectures, he was talking about like the wheat we harvest today, the protein level is too low. It would have been illegal for human consumption just back in the 20s. Right. It would have been legal. And then there was a way you had to harvest it where you got the old nostalgic thing with the sheaves of wheat in the field. Well, that was because they, they, they cut it, they stacked it, and it had to sit there for a certain number of days. And just kind of like tobacco does in a bale for cigars, it heats up from a ferment. It had to ferment for a period of time, and then it had to be tested, and then it could be sold to humans. And if it failed the test, it had to be used as animal feed. There you have like, it. I never learned that in school. You know what I learned in school? And it didn't make any sense to me, and it made me a skeptic from, from being a teenager. You know, I was spending an archery season every day after school up in a tree, went and shoot a deer. Sure. And I learned that one of the reasons we just killed all the buffalo was because nobody wanted to eat it because it didn't taste good. And they even tried to make a beefalo, but people didn't want it. And I'm sitting there going, I eat bear meat. I eat deer meat. Occasionally, I've been fortunate enough to have like somebody bring me some elk. At that point, I hadn't eaten any buffalo, but I was like, this does not pass the sniff test to me. Right. Right. You know, and I went out to a really nice restaurant. I took a, a visitor out to, 
And I just paid 50 bucks for a 16 ounce well-made Buffalo prime rib. And the, the person sitting next to me that tried it was like, man, I, I, maybe I should order that instead of this steak, right? Like we've been lied to forever. Yes. Forever about food as far as this generation and the ones after us go. We really have, and that's that's kind of sad, but I guess it's an opportunity for our generation to say, hey, we're admitting, you know, our childhood, you know, because we did. We started off pretty good, but yeah. gradually went to shit, right? And so yeah. it's okay. I mean, it's not like you said before. It's not a judgment here, but a lot of people have such cognitive dissonance, you know, with their worldview and their view towards food because they are. They're very intentional about wanting to be healthy. But, you know, that's why we have this cycle every 12 months. You know, what happens at January 1st? Everybody's gone on a diet. Everybody's going to lose that weight. We're going to go on a new diet. There's a new, you know, paleo. It's, you know, keto. It's all just so, you know, it's so complicated and it just never stops. It's just, a, it follows the fiat world. You know, here we go. We got new diet programs. We're going to make a million dollars off this, you know, and, and people just need to accept it. You know, acceptance is the key to life is like if you can accept that it, it's kind of screwed up. Well, then you can start over and be OK. And, you know, that's what I tell everybody. You know, the beef initiative is a, is a kind of an international lifestyle you just don't understand yet because it starts with back, getting back to the source of the seed of what nutrition is. You know, what is your empowerment? You know, and that's what. You know, Bitcoin is basically saying, okay, what is money? We've forgotten what yep. money is. We weren't taught nutrition growing up. We weren't taught money growing up. And those are the two things that basically are so important in today's times. I think and always have been if we're going to have any kind of a society. Like if we're yeah, all running yeah. around in one cloth in the woods, the nutrition can take care of itself. We don't need money. Exactly. So if we're going to have anything approaching community where people are going to exchange value, we have to have money and we have to have good nutrition. And the cost is – Unbelievable, but they don't care because they profit from it. If you just look at the cost mm-hmm. in total fiat dollars of type 2 diabetes annually, we could literally feed everybody steak. Of course right? we could. I mean, yeah. just right there. Like, I mean, it's, and it's, it's only getting worse. Ken Berry kind of turned me on to this, and I didn't really notice until he said it because I didn't have need for one. He's like, there are dialysis centers popping up in big cities, and I live just north of Fort Worth, so I'm going to, big city area, mm-hmm. um, they're popping up faster than new McDonald's. And then well, I'm like, really? So I'm, I'll drive down to te- drive to downtown, and I realize on this one strip of about nine miles of road, I pass two dialysis centers. And there's only one reason for that. It, it, it's, it's type 2 diabetes, which ain't even diabetes. It's insulin resistance from insulin. all the crap. There you go, yeah. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that, because that's what people need to start understanding. You know, that's part of food intelligence right there. A lot of people... Uh, how much do how much do you think it costs for per patient to be on insulin every month in the United States? What is that? It's nine hundred dollars a month per person. Yeah, yeah, in half of our nation right now, pretty close to half of it is either on insulin or they're not. You know, are getting there right with type two diabetes. Well, who's making that money? Well, well, you know, the individuals usually aren't paying that nine hundred dollars a month. That is set up to the United States government and all of the, you know, the types of subsidies we do. But once again, the medical, pharmaceutical, agricultural complex creating that little hamster wheel that never ends 
of we're not proactive anymore with our health, we're reactive. And so we, we get this insulin model that basically is high generation of revenue for these yep. pharmaceutical companies and the food, and the food companies are like going, Hey man, we, we've got a new substance out of here. Just letting you know, you're going to have to increase your insulin coming up. But like you said before, I don't think it was really in the beginning, nothing nefarious, but I don't think that they can stop now. It's too far gone. And it's based on basically ignorance of food and, you know, how we food is a drug now. Sugar is the most powerful drug in the world. It and, is. If you, and if you think that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, man, you're just full of shit. Well, no. OK, try not to eat. If you're on a high consumption of highly processed food and sugar, go try to not eat for two days and just drink water. Well, I can do that. For 20 can, hours. Uh, yeah. Go try to do it for 20. Don't there, be there sweaty. And I know because I used to. I used to yeah. like maybe going out somewhere. My wife would be like, you better freaking eat some before we leave. because You're going to turn into an asshole. Yeah. You know, much. and she was right. I'd get sweaty and all. I had blood sugar issues. I wasn't a diabetic, but I would get hypoglycemic and right. I would have become a diabetic. No doubt if I hadn't changed my ways. But now, like you, you know, I used to call it intermittent fasting because I, yeah. I pretty much eat where I go about. I'll go between 20 and 18 hours in between my two meals a day. Now right. it's just how I eat. I don't even think about it anymore. If it if the window gets shorter, it's because a bunch of crap was going on in the evening and we ate later than normal. Right. Right. It's and so there's great, no great. there's no sweating or nothing. And there's days where I'm like, you know, I'm gonna probably have a long interview today. I better eat a little bit before I go on because I'm not gonna be done until two o'clock. And there's days like screw it, I don't care. Yeah. yeah. And I could have never done that five five years ago. I couldn't have done that. No. I could have done it, but I would have been a total complete asshole to anybody near me. You know. <laughs> Well, you're not even functioning properly, you know, just with your, your brain is inflamed anyways. If you're getting to that point, you know, I, my father was a counselor, drug and alcohol counselor for 25 years. And you look at how people react if they get off, if like you said, you get the sweats and everything. That's like detoxing off of, off of alcohol, right? That's like yeah. an alcohol detox. Alcohol is a sugar. And so whenever you're quitting drinking, you go through the sweats, you go through the deets, you go through all those, you know, mm -hmm. uh, symptoms. It's the same with food now. We, we used to consume under three pounds of sugar on average for the average American. Now it's up to 139 pounds of sugar a year. Well, once again, there you have it. You have to detox off of sugar and highly processed foods and people can't do it. And basically you become more fragile. You become vulnerable in there. Basically you're being able to be manipulated with labeling laws and with how things taste because everybody says it tastes good. <laughs> and you know, the, the food industry is very good at that. And you look at what's going on right now. There's a war on beef. There's a war on animal protein. There's a global marketing plan that's being released and it's squashing out the American rancher. It's squashing out the protein. And they're trying to supplement it with, you know, bugs and, you know, 3D printed meat, stem cell meat, you know, pea protein meat, soy protein meat. And all those things are poisonous. Poison beans, man. They're going to make, yeah. that's, they're going to make beat out. Now here's my interesting thing. Like, and I got to share this with you. I, I don't think it would work if I turned around, but the back of my shirt actually says dead is cancer, but being a vegan is worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, it's a shirt we made up years ago. Um, and what I've noticed with this stuff, with the vegan stuff or even the vegetarian stuff, is no one ever tries to make artificial black beans out of out of meat, right? right. No one ever tries to make meat taste like broccoli. <laughs> but they sure go out of their way to make synthetic meat. We just had a comment here 
uh, about that. Pretty much what you, the same thing you were saying at the same time. It's going to uh, put a lot of a lot of cattle producers out of business if you can drive down the cost of that crap. And Lord knows with economy of scale and industrial production, they can over time. Sure. But it's not real food. No, it it's, really isn't. It, it has nothing to do with food. Science, they're using science to make it taste and appear and have the texture of real food. And for all the, you know, crapping on eating the bugs, uh, I, I'm not for that. But it's, it's you're probably better off eating mealworms than freaking rapeseed. Right. I guess it depends well, on what the mealworm eats. You know, eating bu- eating bugs is not new. I mean, I used to yeah. travel. I've, I've been around the world a couple of times. I have eaten a lot of bugs. I used to eat chapalinas down in Oaxaca. They're you good. know, it's a cultural thing. You know, but it's not a staple of my diet. And no. it, but that's you know that's what people are missing the point on. And you talk about you know the comment from Tex Homestead there. Uh, basically, he's right. You know, they're they're changing the way we process food. Whenever whenever I say global industrial food shift, what I mean is from the ground up, the industry is switching into a new way of processing food. And in the long run, if they take the animal out of the processing and they take the soil out of the processing and put it all into the lab, well, guess what? Their profits go up, and that's what they're about. It's about making profits. And so they, you know, they're very good at marketing. They're, you know, they're very good at basically utilizing, you know, crap, you know, rapeseed as a weed and getting people to basically consume it. And the reason they're able to do that is because you brought up a word there, and people need to understand these two words don't go together. Food and science don't go together. <laughs> I'm sorry. They do not go together. Food and biology go together, but food and science, if you've got somebody being bragging that, you know, food science is the new thing and that's how we're going to save the world, well, guess what, man? You're, you're in for a shitty ride, that's for sure. Well, especially what science has become, right? Yeah. When people say they follow science like they're following yeah. a prophet or something, then no, food, your diet and following some mythical authority do not belong in the same room with each other. And I look at science you know, as a discipline and a an error detection process, if that's one definition of science, I'm, I'm all about that kind of science. But once you have that, what error are you detecting? And if the error is they're not buying enough of our crap, how do we correct that error? Then it's like you have a dark and a light side to all things. You have the yin and yang to all things. So every yeah, yeah. power has a dark and a light. So there is a wonderful, liberating power within the error detection process that is true science and then there is the dark side of what can be done with it and if you add status propaganda on top of it <laughs> then you have the sith man you i mean we're you might as well just like get a dark helmet on and let's go um busy right <laughs> that's where it is and you know let's not go there because then the lightsabers have to come out um back to your your beef initiative how does a person become a customer because these sure. ranchers are doing the right thing and they need people to recognize their value and they need to, those people to purchase from them, and we need to rebuild that relationship, and that's what you're doing. Yeah, and that's what's so cool about you know how we developed the model. I wanted uh, Beef Initiative to be open sourced. It's you know that's that's what Bitcoin is. It's open source product protocol network here. So, you know, it's open source uh, software. So the Beef Initiative platform is the same thing. You know, we've we've been selling beef boxes through the Beef Initiative since January right now. 
and we're, we've developed the technology stack to where you can buy in fiat or Bitcoin. It's your choice. And so right now we're shipping beef boxes across the United States, 48 states, and you can buy them. Go to beefinitiative.com and go into beef boxes. You can buy those beef boxes from us. If you want to look for somebody that's local to you and connect with the local rancher or producer, do a search under the producer section and find a local rancher producer. If you don't find one, they're coming in. They're trickling in. And so more and more people are starting to understand. It's like, hey, man, I'm using a producer out here in Wyoming. I want everybody to know about him. So let's support him that way. So people are coming into there. People in Wyoming are finding producers. Missouri, you know, Kansas. It's just happening slowly because I scraped the Internet like three times, and I can find all grass-fed, organic, and all that kind of stuff. But I said, I'm not going to do this. We're going to start with one rancher at a time. And so I, by doing that, we're, we're building a collective trade organization that everybody is contributing to, and we're really open sourcing the input and the output. And so there's two ways you can be a consumer. You buy it directly from the beef initiative. You can trust it because it is definitely verified. I guarantee you, man, the beef that we're selling with Cole and, uh, K&C cattle out of Austin, some of the best beef in the world. Bar none. But then you go out and you say, I'm in Colorado. Well, you do a search. You're going to find Rick Ranches out there in Crawford, Colorado. Well, you're going to give him a call, and he's probably going to deliver your beef to you. So once again, going back to that protocol of the producer, that's how it's happening. I haven't really told anybody, but since we're talking about it, we are releasing on August 1st that we're going to have a subscription-based model because food is about to change this fall and this winter. Get ready. I mean, it's coming. Our inventories are being squashed with beef right now. You don't see it up front right now, but you can see everybody culling their herds. People are trying to get rid of their herds because of the drought across the United States right now. We're going to have a hit within beef. And so people that really want to secure their food supplies, you can actually sign up and do a subscription model with the Beef Initiative. We're bringing more producers in through a processing center, and it's down there in Luling, Texas. And that processing center is opening up probably within 45 days. So we, our volume is about to increase tenfold. If people really want to secure your food supply, you want to have that security you can go ahead and do it now and just buy for the beef initiative, create that relationship with us. You're going to re- create a relationship with, you know, I tell everybody, go shake a rancher's hand. This is how you can kind of do it digitally and, you know, form that relationship because we're going to really bring a voice to the rancher that they don't have. We just finished up our Colorado uh, beef initiative conference and we had about 80 to hundred people there and they came from all over the United States. Guess what? They gave Jason Rick of Rick ranchers a voice and now he's able to have a platform through the Beef Initiative where you feel like I'm getting the right information. I'm getting educated in real time. I don't have to pay attention to all this deception out here about killing cattle and what happened in Kansas, what really happened with that cattle, with those 10,000 cattle. You know, what's really going on in the Beef Initiative, within the beef industry itself, we have so many ranchers that are reporting into the Beef Initiative. You want to really know what's going on. We're, we're lockstep and barrel of the reality of what's going on in our food supplies. How do you feel about what's going on right now with the, the drought that we're having this year? I mean, that's it's something that ranchers have had to deal with for as long as there's been ranches. You, yeah. drought. This is, this is the worst I've ever seen. I've lived here in this part of Texas since 1993 when I got out of the army. Yeah. And I've never seen anything like this. There's a creek. I used to take my grandson fishing eight mm-hmm. miles up the road. It's not running. 
And there is no sign of rain coming anytime soon. The place, the whole downtown Azle is going to stink with dead fish in another week or two. Sure enough. Um, and I've got trees that are 25, 30 year old regrowth that are dying. Yeah. They've never received a drop of irrigation in their life. So when I say it's bad, it's bad. And so I think there is a lot of conspiring to push beef and, and meat in general down. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think there's also like a real natural problem at the same time. Like I can irrigate a garden. I can't irrigate a, a, a 500 acre ranch. No. Well, what what's going to happen here? And this is, you know, the ranching industry, the beef industry is is a complex living and breathing thing. You just can't general, generalize it. But to try to kind of pinpoint what's really going on with the drought and the causes and the effects of everything that's about to happen is, is you're right. I mean, each rancher has a different water source. Each rancher is going to have to handle the drought differently. Yeah. Some ranchers are going to fold. They're, they're folding right now. It's just going to happen because they don't have enough commodity of hay. They don't have enough commodity of grass. They don't have enough commodity of water, right? They don't have those tools that they knew. Those are inputs. They weren't planning for it maybe, but then you have the fertilizer shortage. A lot of people didn't uh, plant their hay this year. They didn't have that. They In the past, they maybe just buy the hay. Well, hay is $150 a round bell now. That's, yeah. that's astronomical. There's some people across the United States that are living through this drought, and they're going to be okay because of their water sources and how they do natural fertilization. And so each region of the country is going to be different. You're in Texas. I'm in Texas. This is a beast. It's a bad drought. It's going to keep on going. And that's where you're going to start seeing a lot of people getting rid of their cattle and they're going to get rid of their hogs. They're going to get rid of a lot of things because they have to. But then again, what happens with that? Well, they can't get them processed because they're, they're basically at the bottleneck in the control of these major processor centers. Well, the food industry, the global food industry is going to take advantage of that and they're going to introduce these new fake commodities, these fake meat commodities into our food supply. They already had it planned. So they're very much celebrating that we're going through a major drought and it's just not yeah. in Texas. It's across the Midwest. So that's why I keep on telling everybody this is a food industrial shift across the globe. Now they get to, you know, rely on a drought that's really stifling the American rancher in ways that we haven't seen. It's probably, I don't know, 2011, 2012 was a shitty time for the beef initiative. Well, I think we're going to double that here. But there's going to be a lot of people that actually do benefit from it because they're set up because they have that vertical integration from the soil to the grass mm -hmm. to the cow to the producer to the processor to the supply chain to you, the consumer. Those people are going to do very well because they're prepared. Like Cole with KNC Cattle, he's, he's prepared. He's not going to, he's going to bring in more cattle because now he, he's opening up his own processing center. He can process whenever he wants. Same thing with Jason Rick. Same thing with, uh, Jason Trammell, Panhandle Meats. Producers, some producers are going to do very well. Some producers are going to fail. And that's just what's going to happen. And there's a lot going on to augment this. Uh, I've got a comment up here and it's really not about the comment. It's the individual Liberty Meat Solutions. This is a guy maybe you should reach out to have on your show. He is a custom meat processor and mm -hmm. he was basically just got to your farm and do it for you. And the way he was advertising, he eventually ran into the wall of the man that is the bureaucracy of the state because I think vegans actually ride him out. But he's setting up right now where he'll be able to go out and it would be for the smaller person that does, you know, two head or something. Maybe they have a, a, a yeah. cow that they inseminate once a year and they, because, you know, I, 
One of the reasons I recommend things for individuals like poultry, pork, uh, hair sheep is because a hair sheep, I can process that as fast as I can a deer. I can oh, yeah. throw an amber in my shop, lift it up, and I can be, I can drink a beer and be done in an hour, right? Mm-hmm. That was some work. So, so he's doing stuff like that. And, and so I think it's going to be, we have to have, so we're going to shift to Bitcoin here in a second in a decentralization, sure. right? This is a decentralized solution. You're creating, mm-hmm. you're not creating a centralized hub. You're building a node. Exactly. And Thank you. Of nodes, right. And like yeah. a person like, like Liberty Meat Solutions, he's a node. He is. He's a node. I love, I love that he's reaching out right now because the mobile processing, man, this is, I hope it's somewhat of a renaissance. You know, it's going to be depending on every state, you know, whether, what are the laws, processing laws. But if you can have mobile processing centers in your state, man, this is going to be something that really does help. You know, we call them the hobby rancher farmer that maybe has two to 10 head and they don't have access to JBS or Tyson or Cargill or National. And that, you know, somebody like, Liberty, uh, that he can come up and he can really basically solve those problems. And you eliminate all these touch points of our food industry. It's a relationship between you and the processor. You don't have to ask any permission and you don't have to basically be bottlenecked out of your market access to your own beef. And so that's a solution he's providing. So tell, I mean, I'll tell him right now, it's like DM me on Twitter and let's, uh, let's right. have a conversation. Hell yeah. Because that's what people need to know. I had him on my show. I'll, I'll do an email CC both y'all. Okay. Uh, after Sounds fact, good. I think he'd love to have him on. I'm sure he'd love to do it. His uh-huh. name is his proper name is Josh, by the way. Good okay. dude. Hey, Met him at Float Fest, and yeah, and he he fed the hell out of me too. He wouldn't let me buy nothing from him. So that's that's awesome. That Isn't that just a great experience? So think about that. I mean, it is. It's a lifestyle change. It it it's not hard once you experience something like you you did with him. You're like, man, this is how I should be eating anyways. I I don't have a problem doing this. Let's let's do all my action. Let's turn off the freaking TV on Saturdays and let's go develop a relationship with somebody that knows how to feed me and can educate me. You know, and that's what I tell everybody is like, get an, go up to a rancher, shake their hand and ask them, say, would you educate me on what you do and why you do it right there, man? You're solving problems you don't even know about yet. And I guarantee you're not going to find one that says no. They might say not this minute, but they're going to do it because. Well, I've had some ranchers tell me get the hell off their land because they didn't like what I was doing because, Uh. you know, well, it's, it, it, that, like I say, it's a vast, you know, the ranching industry is different. But if you find a rancher producer that wants to talk to you, you're, you scored, you know, you won the lottery right there. It's as simple as that. The, the beef industry in some ways is like that there's a seedy underbelly of it. It's more like a sanitation business. They don't want anything changed. Yeah, 100%. they want control. They're not That's how it is. Off. That's how it's always been. This is how we're going to yeah. keep it. Don't, 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 yeah. uh, don't ruffle my feathers. I guarantee yeah. you. And you don't want those guys pissed off. You know, it's it's a yeah. big apparatus. And so you 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 talk to the people that want you know that want to have a conversation with you. If they don't, that's fine. I understand it. You know, it's it's about respect. And uh, you know, this is how we do it. You know, if you want to keep on consuming what you're consuming, you go for it. If you want to change, there's a solution. That's what I tell everybody. So this is a big enough challenge. Mm -hmm. Why Bitcoin? So like, does a customer have to use Bitcoin? No, no, they don't have to, but you're encouraging it. And why would, why would you take that approach? 
Well, the the thing about Bitcoin, I think really, you know, the, the FUD around Bitcoin is just dramatic, you know, and this is what our system does in the United States when it comes to anything that's financial. I came up in a company, you know, in Austin, Texas, where I was really, really close in a company and it was, it dealt with the stock market. Our company got bought out by Charles Schwab. And what I saw was a lot of manipulation within the stock market and the financial industries in the United States, right? And so what happens when the, in the stock market in our financial and our government, you'll have companies that come out, you know, at some time, at some point in time, Apple, you couldn't even buy it in certain states in certain stock you know uh, i think it was massachusetts and another one you couldn't even buy the stock because they you know manipulated the understanding what apple was innovating into same with amazon same with google when they first came out they were new it was new technology and so the fud around those was astronomical well now all these companies are the biggest corporations in the world well that's the same thing with bitcoin the the education is kind of slowly moving forward in a way that people are starting to understand and whenever I look at Bitcoin and the education that I actually basically, you know, how I came up through um, Bitcoin was that it's a store of value that that used to be used in a way that we used to leverage our land or the cattle itself. And that's why I always knew that Bitcoin was a good solution and something to educate the rancher into. And so having that transactional value was something that you could, you have control of. That is decentralized. That is a peer-to-peer transaction. You don't have to have permission from anybody. You can convert it into fiat at any time you want, but you are in control. You become your own bank, and you don't have to be paying all these middlemen financial institutions that are corrupt. You know, and the first entry point that I usually talk about Bitcoin with the rancher is like I ask them, how much are you paying on those transaction fees? You know, mm-hmm. they're usually in square or whatever, and they're saying 2.7, you know, 3%. So why don't you just keep that in your own pocket and don't, ha- don't pay it to the credit card company? Let's get you set up with Bitcoin. You can accept Bitcoin. If you want to t- transfer it over to fiat because you have to run your business on fiat right now, we'll keep that 2.7 or 3% in Bitcoin and just let it sit there. You know, you didn't give it to a credit card company. You gave it to yourself instead. Use it as leverage. Use it as a store of value. And people look at Bitcoin and saying it's volatile. It's not volatile, man. It's just going up like this every year. It increases in value 100% in most of the years that it's been. I think like 99% of the time. I think it's one year it didn't go up over 100%, I think. But what it is, it's gradually going up. So that's a store of value that you get to keep for yourself. You get to leverage like you did in the past, like your grandfather leveraged the land. Well, what's been going on with Bitcoin is it's hard to transact. It's hard to build those layers of transactional value. But now we got the Lightning Network. You have uh, partnerships that I've I've formed with Oshi, which is a rewards program. You have Ibex now that we're working really close that are really going to help out the farmers markets. It's going to help out the independent producers and ranchers. And so the technology stack is there now. We're using it. We've been using it since January. It's, it's, it's amazing. Once you get these ranchers to understand basically that, you know, you don't have to ask for permission to be your own bank. You can take a, take back some control of your monetary transaction. They, they light up real fast because most producers, most ranchers are a decentralized thought process. That's what they've got going on because they have to. 
because of the corruption and the manipulation that they have to go through every day, you know, from things like, well, drought is not corruption, but in manipulation, but from droughts, commodity prices, subsidies, everything, every, every year, you know, you, you have to battle something that's volatile. I go up and ask a lot of ranchers, where's the store of the value of the cow right now? And they really can't tell me. It used yeah. to be in the cow or it used to be in the land, right? That, that yeah. was the value was in the cow itself. Well, right now, a lot of times across the United States, the value of that cow is in the USDA insurance policy. And that's what they have to gear their intentions to say, I need to fill out this insurance policy. I need to have this insurance policy in case something happens this year just so I can survive. Well, Bitcoin allows you to say, I'm not surviving. I'm thriving. And we're now, like I talk about Cole Bolton, he's the first American Texas rancher that earned a full Bitcoin by trading beef for Bitcoin, Bitcoin for beef. And he did it, and we did it a slow roll. Look at him now. He is thriving. He is increasing his herd. He's opening up a processing center. He's not having to answer to that umbrella which is basically the bear umbrella, you know, the, the technology use agreement, the Monsanto, all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have to answer that because he's regenerative. His input costs are very minimal. And now he is back to being like his grandfather was. He's a fourth generational rancher. Now he is taking control and is based on the Bitcoin ethos, Bitcoin store value. I mean, that's the, that's the long and the short of it, but it gets pretty complex, no. but. The education's out there. I mean, I've developed a, I, I'm in partnership with Foundation Devices. They do hardware wallets for self custody. Well, we did a Bitcoin uh, education for ranchers on Bitcoin, and it's the why of Bitcoin. And so, on my YouTube channel, you can go there and you can start the webinar series, and you start getting educated. Education is key right now within Bitcoin. Turn off CNBC. Turn off, you know, all this, uh, all this fud, all this manipulation. You know, cryptocurrency, shit coins, all that stuff is a horrible, horrible. You know, it's like, it reminds me of the dot com boom and bust. You know, yeah. In the bust, one point seven trillion dollars was lost overnight. And it's because all these zombie companies were inflated because of a bunch of corruption and manipulation of understanding of what, you know, the dot-com era was going to be. Same thing with crypto. Same thing with shit coins. There's only one Bitcoin, and it's Bitcoin. And it's Agreed. a store of value that you can rely on, and you can now utilize to really give you some leverage in these in these corrupt monetary times. I also think there is a real corollary between the FUD around Bitcoin and the FUD around cattle. Mm-hmm. You want to fix the environment. You actually say you care about carbon. Then there's no way I can put carbon in the soil faster than a savannah mimic civo pasture rotational grazing system. Thank you. You do that and you build the only thing that will build soil faster than that is a sh- shallow marine mangrove system. There's mm-hmm. no terrestrial system in the world that builds soil faster than a properly managed savannah system. Period. Oh, so true. So true. Right? It is. Yeah. It, and who, let's go back to that. Really, what is the best tool for that? Well, the, the land cow. tools, the cow. The exactly. Cow. The cow. I don't yeah. feel very with Dale Strickland, but he said, like, if I had this magic machine, it would take the grass and chop it up and make it wet and hold that about a hundred plus degrees for about forty-eight hours, and then it would deposit it on the ground, and it would the top would dry, and the bottom would remain in soil contact, and the microbes would put it into the soil. Now, if yeah. we only had something like that, and if it was solar powered, it would be perfect, right? It's a cow. It's it a is. cow, right? So on the screen right now, for those that are listening to the audio after the fact, 
I have a chart that I just happened to share this morning on Twitter, and it shows the, the carbon emissions of various things. And it shows that Bitcoin, at, at the, the little tiny yellow bar at the smallest bottom there is Bitcoin. What uses more carbon and more emissions than Bitcoin is your clothes dryer. Yep. Your clothes dryer. And if they had included Christmas lights, we burn so many damn Christmas lights every year, the annual use of Christmas lights in America is higher than the energy consumption of Bitcoin. And if you look at things like the aviation industry, marine transport sector, air conditioners, they dwarf all the rest of it, not to mention just general data centers, the global banking system, gold. So unless you're going to give up the Internet and your Visa card, shut up about Bitcoin energy usage because it is a mouse fart. And by the way, it's using lost energy most of the time. So that's not even accounting for the fact that we're using lost energy and we're stabilizing grids and we're empowering the development of green energy. Like, so to two things to me, they're, they're very, very similar, Slim. Like, it, it, it's almost like everything that really helps is the enemy. Yeah. Because well, it is. the state and the oligarchy need problems or they do not have a justification for their existence and their power. A hundred percent. And that's what I think it takes a long time for people to accept it. You know, once again, acceptance is a key, but you have to understand the, the communications apparatus in which a lot of people may get their information from in the first place. Right. And in, in the, in the basically the FUD and the, and the lies around, uh, you know, Bitcoin and the cow itself. It is. It's, they're, they're basically the same thing. They're, they're intense. And in, in, in any more, you know, once you start understanding, you can see the deception. And that's why I called my first piece, The Harvest of Deception, is to undercover all this manipulation of people's understanding of what food is and what money is. And once you understand what they truly are doing, you know, the chemical apparatus that really that we function on really took off after we debased our dollar in 1971 and we started introducing all these new chemicals into our food supply, you know, the herbicides, the pesticides, everything that we basically really engineered during World War II from, you know, gunpowder to fertilizers, fertilizer to herbicides, herbicides to pesticides, you know, Agent Orange into, you know, you know, Roundup. It's not the same thing, but it's, it's a technology. It's a weed killer. Yeah. It's, you know, everything it is, glyphosate, all that kind of stuff. Once you understand that, you go, oh, I see what they're doing and why they're doing it. And, you know, you look at our soil now, we only have 40 basically harvests left in the United States because of all the damage we've done in this 50-year sequence. That's 20 years. There's two harvests a year, people. And so they, they know this. They know they've killed the soil, and that's why they want to take the animal and the soil out of your consumption model, put it into the lab, and create all this new food and tell you that you're saving the planet. Now, what they're doing is they're covering up the deception in which they created, and they've made basically, you know, a, a society and a world metabolically bankrupt and actually now fiat poor because it never stops. And here we go. That's why you're having a prohibition against food, against animal protein, and prohibition against sound money. That's the, it right there. The single largest export measured by ton that the United States has is incredibly valuable and we get no money for it. And it is topsoil. Yeah. When yeah. we look at the amount of soil that leaves our country through rivers and streams and it causes dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Mexico at the Mississippi River, et cetera, and the amount that blows away, mm-hmm. we export more topsoil than anything else that the United States sends off of its shores. 
Yep. And these people have done this by design and they're doing what people in power always do. How do we make sure we don't get the blame for this? How do we pass the buck to somebody else? And then how do we use it? Even though we're the ones that screwed it up, we're the ones that should be strung up. How do we use it so that in the end it makes us more powerful and gives us greater control? Right. And people think that's conspiracy. It ain't conspiracy. Go look at it. It's in the open. You don't, you don't have to be a genius to figure this out. And if we have solutions and some of it is, you know, grazing animals is a huge solution. I met a gentleman in Missouri a few years ago, deer hunting. This guy, he's not even using animals yet. He's farming in strips. He's using these different rotations. And he sent his soil in to get tested. And the people that tested the soil called him up and said, you're going to get in trouble. Because uh-huh. they thought he was plowing some of the leftover native prairie. And when he bought his farm. And he went down to the tax office. A lady at the you know, small town, Missouri, right? I mean, everybody knows mm-hmm. her. She said, oh, you're the one that bought that farm. She laughed at him. Everybody thought he was an idiot for buying that piece of land. And he just used proper methods to restore the land. And in 10 years, he had the soil so good. And I just imagine, like, I was talking, like, if you were just running chicken tractors, a leader follower system through here with chickens and pigs or cattle through your strips or whatever, you'd turbocharge the hell out of this. But that well, brings me to Go ahead. No, and that's a good point because I want, I want people to understand that the soil does heal itself and it heals it quickly. And, you know, our next conference is out in Georgia at White Oak Pastures with Will Harris, you know, and there, his family owned that land for 150 years. Well, 25 years ago, he said, I'm stopping. This is it. We're going to go back to how great grandfather did it. And he healed that land and you need to look up White Oak Pastures. And what he's done, he's a perfect model that, hey, he went out there and healed the land. And he healed the way of basically he saved his heritage of his family, his tradition and everything, how you are supposed to steward the land, the animals and your families. And so the proof of work is there. People don't need to say, hey, this is something new that we got to figure out. No, people are doing it and they've been doing it for a long time. We just need to give them market access and understanding to what they're doing. And that's why me and uh, Will got together and we're going to have that co-branded conference. It's going to be called the Beef Initiative Food Intelligence Summit. And we're going to really bring a lot of good people into the summit. And we're going to educate, educate, educate and give people a lot of uh, insight into how it can be done. So I, I just wanted to make sure that people know that it, it is kind of daunting right now, but there's solutions. And that's what I'm about. I'm about solutions and putting it to work. So I, I like to educate, 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 because the next thing in my notes here is, is education of the rancher. Mm-hmm. And I think we a lot of times rancher and farmer get used interchangeably. Certainly Joel Salton does that. But I remember I spoke with him back in like 2012 or something. And I remember in his talk, he said that the average farmer at that point in America was 66 years old. And it was yeah. one of our challenges because we have this aging demographic that actually knows how to do this stuff. Not enough young people want to go into it. But also we need to make these transitions. And when a dude is 66 years old and he's just trying to make it to his retirement, whatever the hell that looks like, he doesn't have time for new stuff. And I think of me, you know, I'm in 50 and he's still like, I don't have time to learn this shit today. I got to I just got to get this done. Right. And so how do you educate ranchers? Because we're talking about new ways in a lot of ways. Some of these guys, the idea of just even true rotational grazing is new to them. The idea of direct-to-consumer sales is new to them. God knows accepting Bitcoin is new to them. So how do you bridge that gap and educate those ranchers? Because we need both sides for this to work. We really do. 
and you know, in the beginning, I, I've not, I've never pulled off a conference. I've never, you know, I, I, it's not what I do. But I knew that we had to get this. We had to create some type of uh, interchange of people understanding and wanting to educate each other. And so I started off with the first conference in Kerrville, and it was about a hundred people. And across the aisle, we had half of people that were either Bitcoiners or curious about Bitcoiners, and we had farmers and we had ranchers. And all of a sudden, you had this combination of education that happened at this conference. What we just did in Colorado, same thing. It was amazing to watch that the ranchers know that they need to change or they want to educate or they want to be educated. The Bitcoiner knows that they need to understand about, you know, regenerative practices. They need to understand about market access and food intelligence. So it's happening naturally. And we're creating these conference, uh, these conferences in that mindset saying, Hey, this is our platform, what we're using. And, you know, within uh, Georgia, I'm going to live stream that globally. And what it is, it's creating that conversation and it's bringing people together. Like in Colorado, man, three day conference. We fed everybody. Everybody was there. We talked about homeschooling, unschooling, childbirth, you know, homeschool, uh, home childbirth. We talked about regenerative practices, uh, how, how to educate on Bitcoin. At one time, we onboarded over 53 people within 13, 14 minutes. We had ranchers onboarded. We had the whole, um, we had the whole conference onboarded within 14 minutes. And for appreciation, we, we were able to tip Jason Rick there over a thousand dollars within 14 minutes. And we didn't have to ask permission. It got processed instantaneously. And all of a sudden you have, there was, I don't know how many ranchers there, but there was a, quite a number of them. A lot of them were speakers, but all of a sudden they were onboarded. They're educated now in a way. And we're providing that education. Like, like I said about our YouTube channel, we have the education out there. We have these conferences out there. We're creating the market access that they can come into, the platform that we have within the Beef Initiative. If they want to go direct to consumer, they can have it. The consumer, if they want to create a new consumer demand, you have it. And it's it's basically happening, and it's really kind of exploding right now, which is beautiful. But what we want everybody to do, I'll, I'll be very bold here, and I'll be very mm-hmm. honest. I'm as guilty as anybody, okay? I, I, I admit it. You can't come after me for saying this. But damn it, change your freaking consumer demand. Quit, quit, you know, propping up the, the global food industrial system that has gotten us here, that is still on our land, still in our soil, that's lying to you every day. You need to take action individually and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I'm going to do it in a way that is healthy and it's saving children's lives. I'm going to feed my family just like my, my ancestors did. That's the first step. Well, you need education. You have the Beef Initiative. We have people like you, us doing this podcast today. It's up to the individual to understand. You got to act locally, but you're going to broadcast globally. That's what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what are your plans for the rest of the year and for 2023? What we're going to do, like the conference in um, – in Georgia, it's in Bluffton, Georgia, at White Oak Pastures. It's September 16th, 17th, and 18th. Okay, there's only going to be a hundred tickets sold because that's all Will can, you know, accommodate there on the at White Oak Pastures at the farm. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have the same type of education. We're going to make this a global event, though. We're going to get everybody involved. And then uh, I talked to Cole Bolton last night, and we're looking to basically have an end of the year conference down south in, in south central texas outside of austin texas and basically what i'm going to i'm, I'm going to announce it on here i'm not going to formally announce it 
but as far as the beef initiative, we're going to start in, in 2023 is basically we're moving forward with the Great American Health Initiative, and it's going to be led by the American rancher. We're going to give that rancher a voice that they are being stolen from, that they don't have a platform to speak from, and then we're going to do it collectively. You know, we're going to do it as a, as a community that is forming, and we're going to change the narrative. We're going to we're going to signal out the truth, the honesty of the situation, and we're going to understand that that the the vertical integration back into your food supply that starts with the soil to the grass to the cow or animal, to the producer, to the processor, to the supplier, to your fork, is the same vertical integration back into human health. The same vertical integration into your food supply is the same vertical integration back into human health. It's called the Great American Health Initiative. And that's how we're going to look at 2023. We're, I'm looking and I'm talking to people in Australia right now. I'm talking to people in Europe right now. Uh, South America, of course, we're talking to people in El Salvador. So we're going to make this a, a basically a global signal that people can all participate and they can act locally, but we're going to broadcast globally. So we've got a lot of big things coming up. You know, we're going to bring in more producers. We want people to be able to have access to their local producers. If they can't, well, they can come through the beef initiative and we'll take care of them. But we really, really want more people. If you're in Washington state, we want you to eat your beef that's in Washington state. But until then, we'll be able to accommodate you until we get those other producers in. I'm going up to Boise, Idaho in October. I'm going to Wyoming. I'm going back to the Appalachians out there in the south. I'm going to Georgia. I'm going to be going to Florida. I'm going all over the country. I told everybody that I'll, I'll go anywhere in the next two years. You know, it's boots on the ground. I just drove about 8,000 miles in about 40 days meeting people, you know, shaking hands, Going to Bitcoin meetups, and we now have a headquarters in Nashville. It's at uh, Bitcoin Park, and it's the Nash Bitcoiners. They just established that. So we'll have a headquarters in Tennessee. We're going to have a headquarters in Colorado. We're going to have our national headquarters down there in Luling, Texas. And so we're just building nodes. I love that you used that earlier. We're building nodes because yeah. that's what we need. And we're going to build the crap out of these nodes, and we're going to empower our communities again, just like our grandparents did. See, and there's there's an old saying. I don't remember who said it first, but it's that sovereignty is not granted; it must be taken. It it has to be. And that's what we have to do here. If you want food sovereignty, you have to take it. If you want health sovereignty, you have to take it. If you want knowledge sovereignty, you have to claim it. You have to take it, and you have to defend it. Yeah. And what I love about Bitcoin is it's like one of the indestructible superheroes. That's the scariest one. Like you know, the, no matter what sexy power you have, if you can't kill me, if you can't hurt me then it's a matter of time before I get you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's indestructible. And it's it, it's a decentralized nature that makes it indestructible. I mean, if you think about the FUD, the attacks, everything that has happened, and Bitcoin's sitting at around 20 grand right now in the middle of, like, a recession, whether they want to call it that or not, it's it's pretty impressive. It's, um, it's China wonderful. banned it like 80 times before they banned it for real, and everybody just moved to Texas and Wyoming, right? I mean, like, it's... Yeah. Like you, you, you can't stop this, and that's that's what you're trying to build. Now, you talked about traveling around. I heard scuttlebutt. You're going to be in my backyard in August. Uh, yes, me- I am. We're, there's a there's a brew pub or something over there in Fort Worth, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think I'm heading that way. Yeah. <laughs> so I want I want people to know about this. If you are near Fort Worth, let me get this up on the screen. I wanted to make sure before I said it. Uh, is Thanks for checking. <laughs> verify. But, uh, but we yeah, always Texas verify. Slim and I 
We'll be in the same place. It might cause some sort of disturbance in the force or something. Uh, but I think it's the ninth. And let me check. Yeah. The guys were talking about it on Telegram. And he said the latest, the latest one's not been made public yet, but they're about to uh, do so. It is August 9th. Uh, Pogue Mahone's Irish Pub. And uh, so that's the place that's going to be at. And if, if you want to sign up for that meetup, and I, I just had one with them at a really cool, it's like a speakeasy bookstore. It was really a bar, but it looked like a bookstore called Thompson's uh, this month. Great group of people. Come out and meet us. And if if you're not near Fort Worth, find right find one of these meetups. Yeah. You know, and I'll make sure that there's a link to this one. But just go to meetup.com and it, it to me it, it's amazing what happens when people connect and then realize how much in common they really have. Like it's a very motley crew at all of these things, but yet there is a <laughs> commonality in it. And I know people are pretty excited about you being there. Man, it's, it's so, it's so true. And that's what I found on, you know, going across, I think I did nine to 10 meetups when I was on the road. And, you know, I found out one thing that I could walk into any of those meetups and it was a family reunion in a good way, not a bad yeah. family reunion. Yeah. But, you know, you do, there's a commonality there that it's not political, man. It's not about culture. It's not about race. It's really just about a, a really, a, a, a yearning to be self-empowered again. And so once you can get that base layer of understanding, you know, the conversations flow, the relationships happen in the, you know, the conferences that we've been having. And it's, it's amazing to watch the type of people that you have an old rancher that's 70 years old that, you know, is tired of the manipulation and the corruption talking to a young guy that's 20 years old that, you know, is a, is a programmer, is a software engineer and they're talking the same language. That's hard to do. That is hard to pull off. But, you know, as far as that is concerned, I've been telling everybody at these meetups, especially the Bitcoin meetups, you know, what we're doing in uh, Tennessee is we're going to go out there and find one rancher and we're going to ask him to come to a meetup. So say, would you educate us as a group? We're not even going to talk about Bitcoin. We're going to yeah. let the ranchers have a voice and let them educate us and let us let let them tell us about the corruption they're up against, what their pain points are and what type of market access to their product that they can give to us. Once we've established these relationships and these meetups and then what do you know, the rancher is empowered now. He knows he has a consumer demand that's coming his way that he can rely on. That's why these meetups are so important. Start getting your local producers. Don't talk money. Don't talk anything. Let them educate you. Let it, let the conversation lead into Bitcoin. It always does. Yeah. You don't have, you, we're not used car salesmen, man. This is, this is a time to educate and let the, the people that are actually, that truly want to feed you, that live and breathe because they, they have a passion for feeding you. Let them have a voice first and then we'll go into the money and all that kind of crap. Let's create that new market access of understanding. That's the smartest thing that we can do at these meetups and these meetups are really starting to get a lot of leverage behind them as far they're they're very valuable. I see that they they have some legs on them and you're going to start seeing a lot of people start attending even more. Yeah, and it's it's a great great place to connect and a great place to learn and uh, yeah. I really recommend people and not just Bitcoin and not just beef. Like if you have something you're passionate about in your life that actually is on the right side of history, find mm-hmm. other people and, and, and force and you'll find overlap. I guarantee you, like if you find a, a meetup group that, that's about health and nutrition and they're doing it the right way, they're going to be interested in beef. And you're going to, I bet you, you throw a rock in that room and hit two or three people. One of them is going to be a Bitcoin. 
Oh, every time. This is not 2012 anymore, right? We are in a different place. This is a different time. Well, you look at like uh, Adam Curry with No Agenda Nation. You know, they have their meetups. And whenever I was in the Carolinas, we combined a No Agenda meetup with a Bitcoin meetup. Awesome. Went fine, man, and that's what's happening. We're combining, we're cross-pollinating all this, you know, yearning to have a different way of, you know, sound money, sound health, sound communications. And so it's definitely happening. And like the guys in Fort Worth, you know, they reached out and said, hey, will you come speak? And I said, sure, why not? Anybody, and that's what I'm trying to tell everybody, if you want me to come and really represent and what we're doing within the Beef Initiative and Food Intelligence, I'll go anywhere in the world because that's how I've set up the Beef Initiative. That's what we're ready for. We're building these nodes of sound communication so we can actually start educating each other in that way. And so it's going to be a fascinating two years to see where I go. So, you know, here we go. It's going to be a blast. So I'm going to make sure that we have links to the Beef, Beef Initiative, your podcast, and everything sure. you're doing in the show notes today. But just, again, beefinitiative.com is where you learn more about the Beef Initiative. Uh, Texas Slim has a great podcast. I think it sounds better on Fountain. Uh, it's called yeah, Texas it Slim Vision, and I'll have a link to that as well. But if you just open your F- Fountain app, go to the – I think people get confused about Fountain. It's a little different. Like you search under Discover, you find people and episodes. Right. You want podcast, search under podcast so we can sub to the podcast. Send them a boost for the stuff that goes on today. But I was wondering, we got a few things I marked for follow up. Maybe we could take a couple of them. Um, there's a question about beef initiative, and I think it's, it depends is probably the answer. But Hunter770 says, is beef boxes only or can we get like a whole half a steer? You, uh, on the half a steer, it depends on where you're located, right? We yeah. can't, we can't, we don't want, we can, but we don't want to ship from, uh, you know, from Texas to Washington state. That's kind of a bad idea, but we yeah. have shipped, uh, half cows all the way out to California. We've done it more than once and they didn't care about the price. But, it, you know, as far as, uh, getting a half a steer, if you're around Texas, if you're around, uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, we can you can go through the OSHI app and you can actually you know if you're paying in Bitcoin go to the OSHI app and look on you know for Beef Initiative and K and C cattle there Cole he sells half and he sells whole he sells quarters through him through the K and C cattle website so we can throw that up there as well it's uh, knccattle.com you can go get your half a cow there if you're gonna do with uh, Bitcoin you can pay in Bitcoin and get sats back and you can actually you know the 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 rancher's getting sats you're getting sats you're getting a half a cow. So there's a couple of touch points there that you can get your half a steer if you're in Texas or those states that I listed. Awesome. Um, here's a question, and I don't think that the example given is practical, but I think some level of the concept is, Sarah says, can the Federation have systems of support for things like drought? You're going through, say, a farmer in New York who's also a member, hosts some of the cattle from a rancher in Texas. That's a long way to transport a, yeah. live, a live cow but there is something to this in that in years unlike this year, usually it's the guys in East Texas. They have all the grass mm-hmm. and they have all the hay and they have their cattle. And so the dudes in West Texas, you see the big round bales going out to West Texas to get them through a lean time. This year, that ain't happening, but it seems like maybe there is some level of network like that because I'd prefer the cow eat the grass off the ground, but I'd prefer to eat the cow eat hay than starve. Yeah. Uh, there's a point where some of them have to just go early, right? That's, that's part. I mean, if you listen to Greg Judy, that's herd management. Um, but there's a point where if I get rid of my whole herd, I don't, I don't have business anymore. So 
Right. I don't know that that's the solution, but I think there is like, we need to realize like we're not in competition here. We can't raise mm-hmm. enough cattle to meet the entire, especially this kind of beef. You cannot raise enough of it to meet the total demand. So like an inner network of support where it does make sense. I think that's a good idea. No, it, 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 and that's where we're going on the technology side of things because, you know, like I said, this is a collective trade group. That's what the Beef Initiative truly is, and it is sharing those points of contact. It's those nodes of communication that we're building out, and, you know, it would be too much. You know, somebody in Texas shipping up, you know, a herd all the way to uh, New York, but you know what? There's a times here in West Texas that we, we ship to Missouri so sure. it just depends, but you know, diesel prices right now, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to worry about. But what we can do is create the conversations, create the, con- you know, the communication structures. And I think that, you know, that's what people don't understand is how censored and how bottlenecked our communications are to be able to have that free flowing, uh, peer to peer communication saying, Hey, I want to help, uh, help somebody out here in the Texas panhandle. I'm over here in eastern Oklahoma that has a little bit more hay. That would be a good solution right there because that can happen. And then yeah. up there in New York, you know, maybe somebody, you know, down in Rhode Island, it just depends. It's a regional thing. It's a regional solution. But building that communication structure out, which what we're doing on the back end within the Beef Initiative, you might be able to find those touch points that are going to benefit, you know, that type of question. Sure. There you go. Is There's, that Kate right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll make, sure yeah, make everybody knows that. If you want to get a half a cow and everything like that, you know, and you're, you're, you're in the state of Texas or whatever, or, you know, like I said, Arkansas, Louisiana, all that kind of area, uh, you can do that. And, the, but on that note, that's that on the flip side, here we are. We're talking about coal with, uh, KNC cattle. This is what's so important for the producers or somebody that's already getting their half cows from a producer. Let's get them into the beef initiative so they can yeah. have market access. Just put them in there. We're, there's no permissions. We're not certified. We're, if you, you know what your certification is? Your certification is going up to a rancher and shaking his hand and him wanting to tell you about it. Give him a phone call and he wants to talk about, we don't need all these certifications anymore. The more marketing and labeling that you have on, have a, have on a part package of food is the, the more the deception is all. I eat food that doesn't have any writing on it. That's what I like to tell everybody because I know where it came from because I have a relationship because, you know, I built that relationship with that person. And that's what we have to do is we have to, you know, change our perspective on, you know, what is a true certification. A true certification is a relationship. Awesome, man. So you mentioned we have 40 harvests left in us. Where does that number come from? I've heard a lot of scary shit. I haven't heard that particular number. I, the people that told me that number are, you know, come from, you know, people like, you know, Weston A. Price, you know, they, okay. there's a lot of these people that have been doing these studies for a long time. And, you know, it is, you know, let's say it's, you know, 40, 50, it's, 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 yeah, minimum. I was going to say, what if it's off by a factor of a hundred and you have yeah. 40, 80 harvests? Well, you're, you're still at only 40 years, it's two harvests a year. Yeah. How many thousands of years do we have millions and millions of buffalo and bison on this land and they stewarded the land and it was the, it was, it was an oasis of soil whenever we got here and how we destroyed it. You can argue semantics, but you can't deny the fact that the damn soil is dead in every year that they change the genetics of the seed. They genetically modify the seed and they, they modify the chemicals in which it takes to grow that. 
whatever seed that is. So you can sit there and get in that argument or you can just accept that, hey, what we've been doing is wrong and it's a reflection in our health. You look at those 10,000 cattle that died in uh, Kansas that I brought up earlier. Okay, what they were, they were fat cattle. That's what they're supposed to be. Everybody did their job. They followed the protocols. They got them fat, right? Well, you had that heat wave that came through. Those cattle were basically one step away from the kill barn anyways, right? Yeah. What happened? A heat wave came through, and those cattle, you know, cattle don't sweat. And so they got overheated over a period of time, 24 to 36 hours. It was very extremely hot in Kansas. It was a kind of a, you know, a fluke heat wave that came through. Well, guess what? They dropped dead because the fat cattle that's fed that type of grain, which everybody, no bad ranchers here, nothing to fair. They're doing what they have to do to steward yep. the animal into where they, they can make a living. Well, you look at that cattle and how fast they perished because they were overweight, they were metabolically bankrupt, and they suffocated. That's what happens to fat cattle whenever they overheat. They suffocate because they don't have, they can't sweat, they don't cool their bellies down, then they start rubbing bellies down because they're getting ready to be into the harvest farm. Well, you look at our society, if you don't think those cattle are a reflection of where we are as society, it's the same damn thing, man. And people don't want to admit that. And it's not a judgment. Once again, this is where we are. And so if you really want to understand where we get our strength and our power as far as who we are as nutritional value, it comes from the soil. It doesn't come from these chemical companies across the world. It doesn't come from the marketing plans. It doesn't come from the government apparatuses that control our market access for our money and our food. And so if we can understand that it's that simple to understand, then, you know, we can move forward. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, with my audience being in the prepper space, I have a lot of the, the government killed them all, man. I'm like, well, it depends, <laughs> on, it depends on how you mean it. If you yeah, mean like, mean, sure. <laughs> where we take a cow during the last six miserable weeks of his life and stuff corn into it, yeah. then yes. But, I mean, I had friends, they're small, you know, small little homesteads and stuff that had, you know, sheep panting during mm-hmm. that. I was up in Tennessee for an event during that episode, and there were just the one girl sheep. I surprised she didn't lose any because they were just they look like dogs. Yeah, panting. and these were hair sheep, so they had you know they kicked kicked off the the fleece. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just stuff like that happens, but it's much worse when the animals are obese and overweight. And I guess one thing about beef we can finish up with is people don't understand like all cows are grass fed. But not all cows are exclusively grass-fed. If you tried to feed a cow from the time it was weaned till the time you harvest it, the way we feed them at the end and finish them, you'll kill the cow. The cow cannot live on the grain that they finish the cow on. You're starting the process of killing the cow when you do that. And if you probably did it for another three or four weeks, that cow's going to drop over and die. 100%. It's called fat, it's called fat gain. And that's what they do. They do it in the last sequence of the cow's life. And they get as much fat on that cow as they can. And it's, it's engineered. Yep. And so that, that's how it's done. But yeah, all cattle start off on grass. Yep. You know, you, I call it the Brazilian cattle drive. And it, this is kind of, you know, out there. It's a generalization though. Yeah. If you can kind of picture it, it's a Brazilian cattle drive. And this is what people don't understand that's going on in the beef industry right now. That cow starts off in really nice grass in Brazil, but then it migrates up into Mexico. 
it's it's basically fed grains that you know it can be fed in Mexico and everything like that. So that cow becomes a fat cow. The ga- the fat gang gets big, goes across the border, it gets harvested in the United States. It gets the USDA stamp saying this is USDA prime, but all it did is it got harvested in the United States and then it ends up in the supermarkets. Okay, then you have great quality beef because we still grow the best beef in the world in the United States of America, and that's what everybody needs to understand. And so what all the beef that we're basically growing in the state of Texas, let's say, that are basically has to go to JBS or Cargill or National or Tyson, well, all the quality beef that we do in the United States goes to that same processing center. Well, that beef goes overseas to China, South Korea, Japan, Europe, and we don't even have market access as far as Texans or the American consumers. And that's what people don't understand is that we're not getting the quality beef. We're shipping the quality beef overseas. And then, you know, Brazil basically exports 2 million tons of beef. A lot of that goes into the United States. We're eating beef from Australia, from South America, and from Africa now, and, you know, from Canada, everywhere. But we're not maintaining our beef here where we live. And that's going to get more. They're not getting rid, rid of the beef industry. They're taking away access taking to the beef industry. Away from us. And that's what it is. They're going to turn beef into caviar is what I always tell people. Yeah, there's a misguided belief that the United States citizenry is too privileged, and the solution to that is to make them suffer. And the rest of the world should benefit at our expense. And there's a, I know that sounds conspiratorial, but, again, just take a deeper look. Um, One more question. We'll let you go there. Lily Farms Food, who's the person that sent the great big boost that I sent over to you, says – what are the dates for the White Oak Pastures Conference? Yes, it's September 16th, 17th, and 18th. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Bluffton, Georgia. And uh, we'll be releasing, releasing that um, August 1st, I think, is the first day that we release the ticket sales. And that will be uh, – we'll release that through, of course, the Beef Initiative website. We'll release, release it to our tr- uh, Twitter handle, which is at Beef Initiative. And then, of course, Modern T-Man is mine. I think I have it up on the screen somewhere, but it's at Modern T-Man. And uh, so it, it, it's coming. Uh, we're, we're finalizing everything. We've got some great speakers. Uh, the headline speaker, well, one of the headline speakers is Will Harris himself. He's going to introduce the conference out, and he'll close the conference. We'll have, uh, we'll have farm tours. We're going to have an educational series of everything I kind of told you about from regenerative practices to homeschooling to the, it's all about the family. It's all about nutrition. It's about the kids. It's about our future. It's about sound money, sound health, sound communications for a sound future. We don't have to play the game anymore. We don't have to ask for permission and we're doing it just as good as anybody that's ever doing it. And this is time. It's kind of a small renaissance and it's going to be a, a wonderful summit. And we want everybody to participate because it is. It's a hell of a lifestyle change that it's not a hard shift. It's actually something that you really get into. You've experienced it in certain ways, you know, and that's what's really cool. What I decided on the road is that I've created a Texas Slim media channel. I am a media company as well. And we have a new handle that we just released, and it's at TX Slim Media on Twitter. And today we release our first episode. So go follow us there. We'll be doing one episode a week. And it's kind of like I, I don't really respect NPR, but they have 
quality production on some of their audio blogs that they do where we're going to bring a very sophisticated uh, production sound engineering to it. And we're going to hear from the people themselves, the ranchers themselves, where people can really understand what's going on instead of all this bullshit centralized media that's going on. Well, dude, this was a, fa- a fantastic discussion. I look forward to meeting you on the 9th of yeah. August again. Come out to Fort Bitcoin meetup. Mm-hmm. Uh, have some good drinks and meet some good people and, and, and shake both of our hands. Uh, I'm going to be on your show in the very near future, so that'll be up and coming, and you get to switch the microphones around. Right. For that. that should be fun. And, man, I appreciate it. Again, I will have links to everything that you sent me and everything that you mentioned in the show notes today. The audio version will go out and the web page and all that stuff will be up for all of the resources about one hour from right now. Sometimes people see it in the notes below and they click it and say it doesn't work. We're not done yet, but it will be soon. It will be soon. true. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciated having you on today and thank you for the work you're doing. Man, it, this is so cool that we all kind of start meeting and we get to start having these conversations and it's happening naturally. And that's what, you know, I always like to point that out. You just be real, man. All we got to do is just speak in a little truth right now. We're all going in the same direction and this cross pollinization that's going on. It's a hell of a time, man. It's a hell of an opportunity in today with all this chaos and all this corruption. You know, there are some uh, good things happening and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be able to, you know, share that with you. And, you know, like I said before, you know, everybody, let's let's have these conversations. Let's develop some relationships. And so I look forward to having you on the podcast and we'll, uh, you know, we'll cross pollinate and we'll continue the conversation. Absolutely. Again, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate you, bud. I knew that would be a great episode. The day he, he got in touch with me and said he wanted to be on the show, I didn't even question. It's like, dude, absolutely. Let's get you on. Let's have a conversation. I will be appearing on his podcast uh, in the near future. I'll be releasing a date and time for that uh, probably later this week. So awesome, awesome stuff from Texas Slim. Let me remind you here at the end of the episode, if you want to help this show and the work that we do, you can simply go to a little website. TS, it's tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Now, look, guys, we just talked about beef. To me, one of the most high-density, uh, nutritious foods out there. I, I eat beef all the time. I probably eat beef more than anything else. And it's because I love it. I love the flavor, but I also like to cook it well. So today's item of the day is the Lodge Carbon Steel Season Skillet. I know a lot of you guys are out there screaming, you fool, cast iron. Dude, I own cast iron. I own all the cast iron. I've got old Griswold skillets that are probably older than my grandfather would be if he was still around. Okay, that's I have all that stuff. Over the years... I have switched over almost 100% to cast, I'm sorry, to, 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 uh, to carbon steel. Do you want to know why? Because when I have a, a pan full of vegetables that I don't want to mess up, I can flip them and not break my freaking wrist, right? I mean, like, it just, but the big thing is efficiency, right? We talk about preparedness and resiliency here. So you might get to a point where you have to ration fuel, right? So if you have to do that, whether it's electricity, if you're cooking like that, or if you, you know, cook like me, you're going to cook gas. So if we can get the pan hot faster, we use less energy to do the same cook. The other thing I want is I want control as a cook. I want to be able to bring the heat up fast, and I want to be able to bring it back down quickly as too. There's times when I'm cooking, the pan's a little hot, and I just want to lift it up off the burner, and I want the temperature to immediately start dropping. I get that with a steel pan, not a cast iron pan. Cast iron pans are great at holding heat, and if you're doing something like Dutch oven cooking and all, I still use it for that. But for like steaks... 
chops, things like that, something I'm going to sear on both sides and throw in the oven to, to finish, I use these exclusively. I have two 12-inch and one 8-inch to stay up and ready to go at all times. I got a big two-handed 15-inch one. I love them. Uh, I will never, I don't think I'll ever find something I love more than a well-seasoned carbon steel pan. And Lodge makes the best affordable ones that you can get your hands on. And there's no reason to go fancy with these things. It's a, it's a well-seasoned piece of carbon steel. That's what you're looking for. And that's what you'll get. Well, the 8, 10, and 12-inch, not the big 15, but the 8, 10, and 12-inches are on sale today. The 8 and the 12 are like 33% off, and the 10 is like 19 If you don't own any, get a 12-inch skillet, start cooking with it, read my article on how to take care of them, and we're going to be doing a show pretty soon. We're going to be talking about the essentials of the kitchen, and one of the things we'll definitely talk about more is cooking with and taking care of carbon steel pans. Again, I know you guys love cast iron. I'm going to say I had an amicable divorce with cast iron. I still respect cast iron. I still like cast iron. We still do some things together time to time. Maybe, you know, take the kids out together or whatever. We're sociable. Like, we don't not get along. But when it comes to my cooking, I spend most of my time now with carbon steel skillets. If you try it, you'll see why. And you can learn about it again at tspaz.com, or you can always find my item of the day with that. I bid you farewell. I bid you adieu. I will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow, especially some of you guys that are listening on the on the breakout side, on the Bitcoin breakout side, if you like what you heard today, how would you like to learn how... So we talked about beef and ranching and, and all that good stuff today. How would you like to learn how to raise your own chickens and pigs for almost no input cost, no feed costs at all? We can do it with cattle because they eat grass. There's ways to do it with chicken at zero cost and raise really high-quality meat chicken. And there's ways to do it with pork, and it'll come out to an input cost of a, a final product of about a quarter a pound. Not a quarter of a pound for feed. Like, you get 200 pounds of pork, it'll cost you 50 bucks in feed inputs. It sounds crazy. Well, tomorrow my guest is Billy Bond. He's an amazing dude. And you don't want to miss that show, so that'll be on tomorrow. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. Yes, we'll be live. We'll be back on the TSPC side of the YouTube live stream. You can always find out the next upcoming live stream. If you want to catch a live stream, tspclive.com. Redirects to a page that will show you that. Come check us out. Again, you guys that are tuning in for the Bitcoin-only content, there is a whole world of non-brittleness. There is a whole world of redundancy. There is a whole world of abundance that you can follow the truth to. Diet, nutrition, growing your own food, building economies that do not have excessive entropy. It can all be done. Bitcoin is a piece of it. Come on over to TSP. Let me show you the rest. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout.